0: If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or a concern that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends will like to thank Mint Mobile, Upstart, Stamps.com, Best Fiends, Wondrium. Squarespace, our contributors at patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: Throughout the history of Astonishing Legends, we've covered many haunted locations. In those stories, we found that whatever seems to be going on with most of them, folks like to point to the presence of a particular entity or perhaps a small group of them manifesting in specific ways. That is certainly one type of haunting, and as we've pointed out since our series on the book The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, you never really know what might be behind a haunting, or what its goals are, if you believe any of this at all. There are many other types of hauntings, but there is one type in particular that we'll be taking a look at tonight, the traditional haunting. It's the first kind that usually comes to mind when you think about ghost stories, and most of the time, it centers around some spooky location. The abandoned house on the dead-end street. The shuttered factory. We're not sure why we all call these traditional, really. Other than that, they tend to be relatively simple, and more often than not, they also appear to be echoes of the past. If you've been listening to us since the early days of our show, you may remember the gentleman in the top hat and tails that our guest Marty saw in the mirror behind him when he was staying in the hotel on the Queen Mary for a few nights. It would also seem that places that saw many people coming and going may retain some sort of spiritual imprint of days gone by, especially if there was a great deal of emotional turmoil, either positive or negative, in the area. Tonight's story is just such a story. Although we titled this episode after a particularly boisterous character from the past, and he's a central figure in it for sure, the story is more about the place he lived and how the things he did there may have left some perpetual traces behind for eternity. We suppose one might almost find this kind of haunting comforting in a way. But regardless of its nature, and what may or may not be behind it, the home at the center of this tale takes us on a stunning journey by itself.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Burgess.
1: Those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant, from his garden, and the cars going up and down his
2: drive. F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Join us tonight as we dive into one of the most notorious haunted houses in the Pacific Northwest and its most famous occupant, the Mad Doctor of Spokane. And we're back. That we are, folks. Sounds like we're back in the roaring 20s. Uh, I'm going to have to start here. <laughs> very good. Yes. Th- yeah. No, that's what I was going that's for. That's good. I got it. I love it. Uh, I, I, but Forrest, I, I do have to start uh, tonight's housekeeping out with a very simple concept. I apologize. <laughs> What What for this time, sir? Well, I apologize for saying that your Sling Blade joke a few episodes ago was outdated <laughs> and no one would know what you were talking about. It, man, uh-huh. We got a lot of emails from people saying they got it, so I'm just going to let your humor <laughs> run amok from here on out. Well, we'll, well, thank you. We'll see how
1: long that lasts. Uh, <laughs> but, folks, I wish you could have seen Scott's face. It was very, very late where he was. And it was late where I was, but uh, he was uh, just zoning out. But when I said, uh, when I did the Billy Bob Thornton impression, his face just went blank. And he said, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. And I, geez, I I think I I put him into a trance, Uh, but, but come on, we have a lot of film fans in the audience like ourselves. And uh, yeah, they're going to get this stuff occasionally. Now my goal is to do an impression that nobody gets.
2: Well, I'm sure that won't take too long. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mustard's good too.
2: Mm All right, folks, we got a great show tonight, but just quickly, we wanted to thank everyone who got their tickets to the Nashville meetup on August 7th. That thing sold out in 45 minutes. Uh, granted, we can only let 100 people in, but it's nice to know people are that interested in attending, and we're thrilled that Adam and Matt are going to be there from Graveyard Tales, too, which brings me to my next note. We're about to be dark for two weeks rather than the usual one week. Uh, this is actually a normal part of scheduling a bi weekly show on a year-round schedule, A few two-week breaks just come up, but even if this one wasn't here, we'd have to take it anyway, because we're going to Podcast Movement in Nashville, and we're also having that meetup on the following Saturday.
1: Yes, so after tonight's show, we'll be back on August 14th with a new show, and we're super excited about it, because we're going to talk about UFOs in the news, Skinwalker Ranch, and cattle mutilations with our friends, Jeremy and Adam, and you're going to want to hear what they have to say, because it's pretty fascinating.
2: Okay, so this is a super interesting story. I had a lot of fun researching this, and it's nice because we have recently done a few more stories that were local in nature. I've particularly noticed since I've moved back to the East Coast, really good stories that were here that I wasn't aware of until I got back here. And and now we're starting to take a look on the smaller level around the country, too. We're still covering those big stories. We love doing those big, famous ones. But every now and then, the, the small town stories have a lot of really fascinating elements to them. Indeed, and you got to do the phantom horse of Greensboro, so I thought it was fair
1: and high time we examine something from my neck of the woods. Indeed, what and in what part of
2: the country is that, us?
1: It is eastern Washington, northern Idaho area, but specifically we're going to take a look at uh, what's called up there the Inland Empire, and of course the biggest city around them parts is Spokane, Washington. Uh-huh. And of course if you go across uh, the state line into Idaho, which is right next to it, pretty much you'll hit Post Falls and Coeur d'Alene, Lake Coeur d'Alene. It's a very beautiful area up there. But yes, so Washington State is the dividing line with the Cascades there. And then, of course, on the western side, you have Seattle, Tacoma, those big cities over there. And and they're lovely for their own reasons, but we're talking about the Inland Empire here. And for most of those folks out there, when they know that I'm from eastern Washington, northern Idaho, they say, gosh, it's really rainy there, isn't it? Like, no, 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 that's Seattle. So (laughs) The mountains stop all that. They just think that Seattle's one big rainy state, and it's not. So the area has a lot of Old West history to it. Not as old as you're going to get, of course, in New England or your southern states or really anything just east of the Mississippi. But for its day, there were pioneers out there. There was a lot of development. But yeah, relatively old. One of the oldest things in the area that I remember, of course, is... The Mission of the Sacred Heart, or as we know it locally, mostly, is the Cataldo Mission. And it's also known as uh, Coeur d'Alene's Old Mission State Park. And it was one of the first structures out there, I believe, built around 1850 to 1853. It is on the National Historic Landmark list in 1961. It's put on there in the National Register of Historic Places in 66. But that's going to be located near Coeur essentially Cataldo, Kootenai County, Idaho. Not that old, but there were, of course, indigenous people for thousands of years before that. So there's a lot of history there. But as far as European history and settlers, it doesn't go back as far as a lot of the stories that we cover. But certainly there's going to be some good stories in there. And it was just as raging during the 20s and the turn of the century. Spokane itself, and it's the old pioneer days, there were a lot of shootings. Yeah. In the Old West style. I don't know if this is true, but my dad said at one point there was one shooting a day in the street. Oh, wow. So, yeah, any old west town with a lot of money pouring through, and there was a lot of timber, railroad, and especially mining money up there. So there were people who had vast fortunes who settled in the area, and they made their mark on Spokane, and
2: especially the South Hill, where our story takes place. I think anyone who's followed our show from the beginning knows that we have a predilection uh, for leaning towards stories about the old west. We both have a fascination with that, and this, in a way, kind of is the old west or the more recent west. It is a fascinating story when you look at the early days of the country and what was going on out there, because that part of the country was late to the party, but it doesn't mean there wasn't a party. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. So let's talk about where we found this story for us, or explain to the listeners where it came from.
1: Well, like so many fantastic legendary legends, histories of mystery, many of them you'll find start at Costco, <laughs> a Washington State <laughs> staple founded in Washington State and one of Was my- it really? I believe out of the Seattle area. Yeah. Well, you know, one of their brands is Kirkland. Uh, That is a a major suburb of the Seattle area. Bedroom community, you could say. Fantastic place. My friend Arnie put a cutout of Captain Kirk at the town sign entrance to Kirkland because he thought it was appropriate. I don't think it lasted (laughs) very long. With Costco, my favorite store. And if there's ever any kind of apocalypse, that's the first place I'm going to camp out because they have everything. I'm looking here. It says it, it does say it started in Seattle in 1983. Okay, so there well, there you go. You go. I, uh, that's at least one thing I've gotten right out of uh, the seven years I've been on the
2: podcast. Sorry, I, let me correct that. I'll update that. The company opened its first warehouse in Seattle in 1983, but it was founded July 12th, 1976 as Price Club oh, yes, in San that's Diego. Right. Oh, there you go. Okay. And then 37 years ago became Costco of Seattle. Interesting. And now its headquarters are in Issaquah? Not too far from the location of one of our
1: most popular and disturbing and thought-provoking episodes, The Sludge Entity.
2: Yeah.
1: But in this case, uh, this came up and actually covered a story with us with the Loremen. men. That episode they are producing right now, they're doing post-production on it, but that was one of the first things I thought of when they asked me very generously to come on their show and be a guest lore person. They were asking me, like, what do you want to do as a story? And I said, we well, guys have such tremendous... Great old history there in Eng- Merry Old England. You have volumes of legends and lores that are ended up in print contemporaneously written at the time and just the most fantastical stuff. But, but let's do something for my region, my half of a one state and the top half of another state region. <laughs> and I remembered I got this book from Costco and they had a little bit of difficulty knowing what that was. They have similar stores in England, I believe, that are more warehouse type stores. Uh, but I was telling him they have a great book selection. They're like, really? It's like, oh yeah, they have tables and tables of great books, DVDs, they got magazines. And in this case, this book jumped off the table and grabbed my attention. And it's called Washington Myths and Legends. And it's the second edition, the subtitle being The True Stories Behind History's Mysteries, written by L.E. Bragg. That's
2: L-E-B-R-A-G-G. Her first name is Lynn. Yes, that's right. And it was copyright 2015, the second edition here. And yeah, this is a great book. Each chapter is a different story from the area. Our story begins on page 111. The
1: story I covered with the Loremen is another great tale in there that I offered to them called The Lady in the Lake, where a a murdered woman's body ends up in a very deep, very cold lake in Western Washington in the the horn there if you if you look on the map, the Olympic Peninsula, and her body eventually turned to soap after being down there many years, which is, so that's very strange.
2: I can't wait to hear that. So that's coming out on the Lorman. They haven't dropped that yet as of our recording on this, but as soon as they do drop it, we'll be sure to mention it in our next episode and on our social media as well, because I I honestly can't wait to listen to that. And those guys are great, hilarious, uh, do really great shows. Yeah,
1: it's a really great format. We had a ton of fun just talking and shoot the breeze across the pond. So that was a terrific time. But I thought, well, what story could we do from this book? Because it's just chock full of... Great stories, each with their own je ne sais quoi, you could say. En mm-hmm. fait. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> <A> Bigfoot, <laughs> uh, Lost Treasure, Buried Treasure. Yeah, it's just a treasure trove of fantastic stories from up there. And to boot, they're all very well written. She's a great writer, I thought. Yes. Just write to the story and gives you the details, but is
2: not dry Which we're about doing it. the opposite
1: of right no, now. No, we're yes. dragging this the, way We are out. the
2: polar opposite of how this book I is I know, <laughs> but you know,
1: Scott, we hadn't gotten an, an angry email in a long time about how we just don't get to the story how quickly. It long yeah. it Yeah, it just takes, yeah, yeah. It, 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 we're just doing it too efficiently. So I, I want to, I like to throw a wrench in there every once in a while. So the story we're going to cover tonight is from a chapter called The Mad Doctor's South Hill Mansion. And as I said, it begins on page 111. Uh, This book is from Two Dot Publishing, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield. Uh, You can find them at Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N.com.
2: Yes, and, the, and it's not the only source for tonight. We obviously have done some additional research. We have some historical records relating to this particular property, and uh, we've been looking in other places, cursory research, as we like to say. Right. But the book was the was the original inspiration. This chapter was the inspiration for us to not only get familiar with the story, but to dig into it deeper. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about this story is that, yes,
1: it's a haunted house. That is just one major element of the story, of course, but not a really well-investigated one. Not like a bunch of other places that we've covered where so many cable go shows have covered it, and they've been there, and they've gotten some interesting evidence. Private teams have gone in. This is still a private residence, and it's a notorious one, and one I wasn't all that familiar with. I'd heard of the name growing up, but didn't know much about it. For being somebody who grew up in the region, hearing some tales about it, certainly some of the, the notable figures we're going to hear about tonight but not a lot about this particular story. It's got one thematic element that Scott loves, and that's the Great Gatsby-esque nature about this story. Yes. The early 20s. And you think, oh, those are just stories of, you know, people having madcap parties. And yeah, those are in those stories, but it also really happened, and it happened here. And it happened with a guy we're going to discuss who, let's just say he's one of those neighbors that everybody has on the block that is just a problem troublemaking neighbor with his radio speakers and his wild parties and just, it it was crazy. And it's hard to think
2: that this actually happened in Spokane, but it did. As my son likes to tell me, this is, it seems to me that what's happening today that's uh, got a parallel is these giant, super wealthy YouTubers. They buy these big houses and move 50,000 people in and have a billion parties all the time. And everyone's like, get out of my neighborhood. That is a great analogy because that happened to friends of
1: mine who live in Encino, California, in the valley, the San Fernando uh, Valley, yeah. and they're fortunately not that close by, but they've talked to other neighbors who are closer. Yes, let's say these fellas who were in their early 20s and YouTube millionaires bought a two-story house and uh, just turned it into a zoo, and there's nothing yeah. you can do about it. People with a lot of money <laughs> can get away with a lot of stuff.
2: Right. So we're going to be talking about this particular house, which we'll refer to right now as the Wilbur Hahn Mansion. We're going to get into the details on that. And as Forrest said, the Mad Doctor of South Hill, or as the title of our episode is, uh, to make it a little more accessible, the Mad Doctor of Spokane. We have decided that we wanted to have a little extra local information though. So we reached out to a paranormal investigator named Amanda Paulson, who lives in the area. She's familiar with the house, and she's also done some investigations into some other things that our listeners will be familiar with and had some Really fascinating personal experiences. So, we're also going to be talking to her tonight. Well, let's start out by getting into the history of the Wilbur Hahn Mansion. And this begins with the marriage of a Ralston T. Jack Wilbur and the heir to the Hecla Silver Mine fortune, Sarah Smith. In 2006, the Washington State Historic Preservation Office sent an application to the National Register of Historic Places for what they referred to as the Wilbur Ralston and Sarah House, or if we untangle Mm -hmm. that, the Wilbur and Sarah Ralston House. This application indicates that the house was built in 1916 in the American arts and crafts style of architecture. So we're going to start out here with this background, some history about the house changing hands and the people that were in it. Then we're going to get into the paranormal activity that has purportedly taken place there and the things that people say that they've experienced locally as we get further into it. So through some research, we managed to gain access to some records from the National Register of Historic Places, and we wanted to share some excerpts from that here. It really paints a picture about this amazing home and its history. And I wanted to include that because I think a lot of times when you hear about all the things that are going on, especially at a home that has a big confluence of activity like this one did, you start to understand how there might be some residual things going on all these years later. Now, these excerpts from the application for the Register of Historic Places have numerous bibliographical references for sources that they were taken from for that application, primarily articles from the Spokesman Review. We're going to add those sources where applicable into our show notes for this episode. If I stop to read all Mm -hmm. the bibliography stuff here during the show, we're going to have to stop down for like 10 minutes because there's (laughs) a lot of cross-references. But those notes will be on our webpage for this episode. You can look for them there, which sources back all the quotes in various sections. So again, these are excerpted sections of the application to get onto the National Register of Historic Places. Quoting, the interior of the home features an open floor plan with an expansive great room, basalt fireplaces, and honey-colored natural wood paneling and woodwork. A basalt stone-clad caretaker's cottage and stone garage are built into the rocky hillside at the rear entrance of the property behind the house. The home, garage, and caretaker's cottage are surrounded by manicured lawn, ponderosa pine trees, rocky basalt outcroppings, and designed landscape features made of basalt rock. These include a two-tiered rock fountain, rock retaining and garden walls, stone steps and stairways, and rocky pathways. We got a lot of rocks up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a giant lava field at some
1: point. There's a lot of volcanic rock as well. And and we have a, a unique feature that I've seen up there where you'll get hexagonal like columns. If you go out to Spokane International Airport, you'll see that's featured uh, behind the sign where it's basically the edge of a lava flow that's chunked off, crystallized in a way into these hexagonal columns. So that's pretty interesting. And then some people's backyards, uh, a friend of mine, he had a what looked like a giant meteorite, and it's a, what they call a haystack. It's a lava haystack, and I wanted to drill into it. I don't think there's anything in there, like yeah. aliens or treasure, uh, Arkenstone, anything like that, but it's pretty cool looking, except that it, it was front and center in his backyard. It took up a lot of room, but uh, yeah, so there's a lot of rock and, and volcanic features in there. The reason I mention this, and people think this is a tangent, the basalt rock, the lava rock, which is very porous, maybe that has something to do with the limestone theory and the stone tape theory. We're going to talk about much later on. Yeah. And that something's perhaps trapping all this crazy, crazy flapper F Scott Fitzgerald party energy and the fights and the the craziness of the times, but also the weirdness and the tragedy. And maybe that has somehow been
2: trapped on this property And in this house. And yes, to be clear to our listeners, uh, and I'm sure many of you know, but for those that don't, basalt is volcanic rock. And if you've ever seen volcanic rock, you've seen it. It's the black rock. And by the way, it is... If you've ever taken a trip to Hawaii and you've, you've visited the big island there and been around that volcano or any other volcano, you realize how unwieldy it is. Very difficult to walk on. It's sharp. Yeah. It's really difficult terrain to navigate or do anything on, But it's, yeah. uh, which is why it's fascinating that this house has been built out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not as pliable as sandstone, of course, or limestone even.
1: But for my geology 101 class, that's the rock formation that oozes up from rifts volcanic, and especially, I think, at the bottom of the ocean where, where they're separating rifts,
2: that is the rock that's usually formed. So essentially bedrock, you could say. Indeed. Where's Micah Hanks when we need him? I know. <laughs> right. The property was 4.04 acres in size. Going on to quote the application for the registry a little bit further, the property embodies high artistic values and is a product of Cutter and Malmgren, one of Spokane's most celebrated architectural firms. At that time, Sarah Wilbur was noted as the first female director, the largest individual stockholder and millionaire heiress of the famed Hecla mining Company. She was one of the wealthiest women in the Pacific Northwest with dividends that paid eleven to thirty thousand dollars a month, and that's back then, yeah, that is a lot of money for that time period. One of the interesting things about this story as we started to dig through it and get into uh, Sarah Smith's background is she was a powerhouse. On June 3rd, 1916, again, quoting the application, Ralston Jack Wilbur, a bachelor who sold mining equipment in Spokane, bought the west half of lot number two, block three in the Riverside addition for $800. The building site was located at the terminus of East 19th Avenue a few hundred feet west of the Kerner House, that's K-O-E-R-N-E-R. He applied for a building permit from the city of Spokane a few weeks later on June 20th, again, this is 1916, and set about clearing the site for the erection of a dwelling. To design the house, Wilbur contacted his friend G.A. Person, that's P-E-H-R-S-O-N, who worked at that time as the lead draftsman and architect for the Spokane architectural firm that we already mentioned, Cutter and Malmgren. The blueprints for the house – and this apparently there's a little bit of mystery about this, which Mm -hmm. came up repeatedly in the research. The blueprints for the house were printed with the firm's name at the bottom of the plans, so it is not known if the actual design for the house was rendered by Kirtland Cutter of Cutter & Malmgrim or by his lead draftsman and architect, G.A. Person. The construction cost of the home was recorded on Spokane building permits at – $2,500. $2500. Now this isn't the final structure. So yeah. that's still a lot of money, but we're just talking about this initial home that was a smaller uh home that he built. The construction cost of the home was recorded on Spokane building permits at $2500 at the time. Now, keep in mind this is for the initial construction. It was a smaller building and that will become more clear here as we move forward. During construction, Wilbur continued to purchase adjoining land especially to the north and west of the property. The additional cost exceeded $4,000, but gave him four acres of steep hillside with breathtaking views. Finally, the house was completed, and three months later, on September 2nd, 1916, Ralston Wilbur wed Sarah Peterson Hekla Smith, millionaire heiress to the Hekla Mining Company. All right, so we need to talk about uh, Sarah Smith. Forrest, why don't you continue here? Sarah Peterson was a public stenographer
1: and director of a Chicago secretarial school. was married, widowed, married again, and divorced all in a short span of 10 years. In 1908, she married James R. Hecla Smith, a director of the Hecla Mining Company, which owned the Hecla Mine quote, one of the oldest continuously producing lead and silver ore mines in the Coeur Mining District. And if you're from the area or you've lived in the area quite a while, you've heard of Hecla.
2: Yeah. And I want to be clear that when we say Hecla in the course of the name, it's because the people that we're talking about were associated with the mine. It's not actually part of their name. It's just a company name, just so everyone understands that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, from
1: her lucrative Chicago holdings, Sarah loaned James money to purchase thousands of shares of Hecla mining company stock, enabling him to become the principal shareholder of the company. Not a bad position there. Uh, so in the prime of his life in 1908, Smith was hospitalized with pneumonia complicated by Bright's disease. And as he got worse, he and Sarah were married hastily on September 25th by a hospital chaplain. At 6.30 that evening, Smith expired. He left no will. To Sarah, he passed his 92,000 shares of the Hecla stock. An overnight millionaire, Sarah Peterson Hecla Smith became the largest single stockholder of the Hecla Mining Company. Wow. And uh, yeah, you, you digging this up, uh, it, it just makes my mind real because it would be uh, like, uh, oh, guess what? Everyone at the top uh, has gifted you,
2: Scott, all their shares in Amazon. What's fascinating about this story when you dig even deeper into it is it, she actually loaned him the money to buy that stock. So that came from her earnings in Chicago because she already was doing well there. And I guess she came back and said, oh, here, you can borrow this money and buy the stock. And then the stock started to skyrocket. And that's why they rushed through the marriage when he was starting to pass away. It's like, we got to make sure this gets back to her.
1: Yeah, no, just a terrific head for business. And one of those people that is able to take that plus intuition and prescience and turn that into an empire. Well, at the time of James Smith's death, the Heckla Mining Company employed no women, and females rarely attended stockholders' meetings. That changed, though, when Sarah was elected as a director of the Heckla Mining Company's board in November 1908. So, also groundbreaking, busting through that uh, glass mine ceiling there.
3: Hi, I'm Carly from Australia, and when I'm not chasing yowies and dodging drop bears,
0: I'm listening to astonishing legends. Now back to the show.
1: While well, Sarah Smith was a familiar member of Heckler's board, of course, relishing the deference paid to her as the largest shareholder, I bet she loved that because that means you are at the top of the hill, the queen of the mountain. So, during her two weeks or more in the Cordell Lanes each year, she discussed mining with the managers and engineers of other companies who treated her courteously and respected her quick mind. Although some managers of the Hecla disagreed with her position and politics, she was well liked by many other Hecla board members and successful mining men, and she was a very powerful force in that company. During her tenure on the Hecla's board of directors, Sarah Smith met Ralston Wilbur. Now, Ralston, Jack, that's his nickname there, Wilbur, came to Spokane in 1909 as the Northwestern superintendent of the Thompson Start Company, which uh, sold construction equipment, I believe, and as such, directed the erection of the old National Bank building on West Riverside Avenue. That's another grand old building there. If you've been through town, you can't miss it, and everybody knows the old National Bank building. Subsequently, though, he joined the Halliday Machinery Company, which also made mining equipment, as a partner and a salesman, and then he made his home in Spokane. So as reported the day after their wedding in the September 3rd, 1916 edition of the Spokesman Review, Wilbur was previously noted a, quote, famous right tackle for Yale University and a champion hammer thrower. President of the class in 95, that's not 1995, that's 1895, I believe, at Stanford University and member of the American Society of Mathematical Engineers and the American Mathematical Society before he arrived in Spokane. So this guys he's no dullard. And according to his picturesque personality, picturesque in quotes, the newspaper article noted that Wilbur was involved in, quote, many sensational escapades at Stanford, (laughs) <laughs> it was BMOC, big man on campus, yeah. uh, which were apparently not acceptable to the university. And so he completed his education at Yale then hastily, and
2: please go. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa. I think you're glossing over something here. He got kicked out. He <laughs> well, got kicked out of Stanford I know, I and was, had to finish it. Yeah. I was hinting yeah. at that.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> I was hinting at that. Well, uh, visions of uh, the movie Animal House danced yes, to my head. Yeah, so kids, that's nothing new. People goofed off then. Your great-grandparents uh, did far wilder things than you probably can imagine. <laughs> As you can imagine here, though, the relationship between Ralston, Wilbur, and Sarah was anything but serene. So he's a bit of a character and a wild thing. She's a tough, strong-minded businesswoman, and I I just can imagine the head's butting there. The the guy's smart, you know, the mathematical uh, propensity there and a lot of uh, acumen with what he studied, but also kind of a party hound. Ralston was actually described by noted Spokane historian John Fahey as, quote, a tall, athletic, dark-haired womanizer and prankster who rushed Sarah Smith into marriage.
2: Yeah, listen to this quote from this article. This is uh, from an article called Cupid, Too Much for Rich Widow. This is from the Spokesman Review, September 3rd, 1916, page one. This is from Sarah. our marriage at this time was quite unpremeditated on my part, said Mrs. Wilbur. It was my intention to leave for Chicago with the object of closing up my business affairs there and returning to Spokane to get married and make my home here. Mr. Wilbur would not consent to this program and insisted that we be married today. I really did not have anything to say about it. He just rushed me over to the courthouse and secured a license. The wedding followed in such quick order that the Davenport Hotel people do not even know that we have been married. Mr. Wilbur has just built a bungalow, I understand, but we shall probably build a more suitable home here later on.
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, a product of the time, but uh, certainly nothing like that's changed if you... Follow the society pages in the newspaper. I can't believe you found all this great information that we, we've compiled here. It's the most detail
2: any. In a fairly sketchy story to begin with, uh, which is you know, of record, but well, I have to give credit where credits due on this. This application, which is clearly public domain because it's an application for the National Historic Register, but it was prepared by, and I would not contacted this person, but I just want to indicate that the form it says right on it, mm-hmm. prepared by Linda yeomans, uh, y e o m a n s. She's a consultant planner for the historic Preservation Planning and Design in Spokane. So, uh, Linda, our hat's off to you. This is very well written. This application is as well-written as, as many uh, historical books that we've read on other topics that we've done. So it's, it's, it's yeah. really well done. <laughs> and we're just taking excerpted parts here. There's a lot more information, the whole thing, not just about these folks. We, we yeah. focused on the people. There's a lot more about the house itself and the architectural nature of it that's really fascinating stuff. I'm an architecture nerd. I, I took some classes in college. Mm-hmm. I never did not finish through on that, as you can see, as, as evidenced by the fact that I'm podcasting. <laughs> but still, yeah. it was uh, it's really a fascinating thing to look through. So uh, nice work, Mrs. Yeomans or Ms. Yeomans. And it reads like a historical novel of sorts,
1: even though it's it's an application. <laughs>
2: it's, it's she wanted them to green it because there's a lot the of list the, and they did. I mean, if I was in charge of what, well, yeah, I would be like, check, this house is historic. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's, it's not just a building. I mean, you know, buildings,
1: if there are no people to live in the buildings, do they, do they make a sound? Does it matter? Really, it's about the people as well, because that's what makes it historic. Certainly with this as well. It's the people that live there that really give this dish the hot sauce flavor yes. it has. Because there's little tidbits in here about, well, how did they think about it? Because here's, some, uh, here's what you would call back then and today a power couple. Well, in the description of the bungalow that Ralston Wilbur had just built at East 19th Avenue, the newlyweds affectionately called their dwelling their love cottage. Isn't that nice? Mm, it's very and nice. within a few weeks after their marriage, however, Sarah wanted to modify the house to suit her own needs and desires, so she gave Ralston $130,000
2: to remodel the bungalow. I wish I had that for a down payment now. Yeah, Uh, yeah, now. And this is back in uh, those days. That was probably half a million adjusted for inflation. A spokesman review newspaper article reported the following, quote, previously, Mr. Wilbur had acquired the grounds and erected a small cottage, which was designed by architect G.A. Person, with whom he became friends during the old National Bank construction. After his marriage, Wilbur told Person the sky was the limit and lavish additions were made with marble walls and the interior was paneled with mahogany inlaid with mother of pearl imported from China.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: So in his mind, he's clearly scored the ultimate sugar mama here, even though, you know, he's, he's, he's doing okay. And by the way, I think I left something out in the early description here that's to mm-hmm. I want to point back to because I realized I didn't get a chance to say it. I think I skipped over it in our outline. I wanted to point out that according to the application here, the location for this home that it was built on was created by, quote, ancient cataclysmic events and catastrophic erosion precipitated by a succession of great floods. Yeah. So just keep that in mind when we talk about the geography of the area whenever we, we always try to look at what's going on here. This is a place of great geographic violence. Yes. Over obviously millennia, millions of years or whatever. But A lot of glacial till. Uh, I know the soil up there is very rocky.
1: Like if you go to plant a garden, you you're going to get a lot of uh, river stone, rounded, smooth rocks. Yes. And it's going to be a pain in the butt to clear all those. And then also there was the, uh, it was it the Great Missoula Flood? We've talked about this before. I did not look it up for this part because I didn't expect us to cover it, but that was a cataclysmic dam. Yeah, I feel like I've seen three documentaries about that flood. Yeah, a glacial dam where you're talking about boulders the size of uh, office buildings tumbling down this valley after this glacial dam broke. And it changed the—Lake uh, Pizzoula, I think, is, a, is the name of the uh, the water event, and it just uh, changed everything up there. So, yeah, that's amazing. I saw the graphic you're
2: talking about. I think it's just tremendous force reshaping the geography of the area. Well, coming back to the story here, they, so they built this huge fancy house, or Mr. Wilbur did, on her dime. However, Sarah was still not pleased with her new home and its remote location at the time in southeast Spokane. The Spokesman Review newspaper reported that, quote— Mrs. Wilbur did not entirely approve of her husband's choice in neighborhood and sneered when he (laughs) took her to the finished home. As a result, Ralston Wilbur's feelings were so crushed that he rushed alone to San Francisco, rented the second floor of the Saint Francis Hotel, and staged a pajama party for thirty couples that drew notice <sighs> in the San Francisco press. End quote. Wow, and again, here we're coming back to Gatsby. I mean it's right out of the book. Yeah, the yeah. Wilbur marriage began to unravel almost before it began, while Sarah saw to her duties as a member of the board and the first female director of the Hecla Mining Company. Ralston Wilbur spent his time in the company of women other than his wife. Mm. Within months after the Wilbur's moved into their remodeled home on East 19th Avenue, Sarah sued for divorce. Spokane historian John Fahey noted that Ralston Wilbur chased women, vile women, Sarah called them. And although he sweet-talked her once out of separating, she soon sued again and was granted an uncontested divorce in September of 1918. In 1919... Sarah sold the property to Sadie Bell and William T. Whitlock, owners of Whitlock's Pharmacy in Spokane. So there you go. So that's the end of that time. But you can see it it started, this home's history starts in a very tumultuous way. There's a lot of wealth, and it's new wealth in a lot of ways. I mean, she had a fortune that she had, clearly she'd been doing okay in Chicago. And this kind of wealth is off the scale for the time period. This was a time when I'm pretty sure income tax was just coming around. There was, I always think about this because, you know, here in North Carolina, we have the Biltmore House, which belonged to Mm -hmm. uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, who had homes all over the country. But that house is crazy. You've seen it in like 25 movies. Whenever you tour it, they're always like, he didn't pay income taxes, you know, and <laughs> also owned every railroad and everything else. But like, yeah, she, sure. you know, when you were making that money back then, it was the, the country was still fairly young and you got to keep a lot more of it than you do now. And that was just this excess. And again, we come back to the idea of the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, man, I'm picking up what
1: you're laying down here. How I felt about this is that it starts off with a lot of crazy dysfunctional energy. yes tweaked by a lot of money and power and, and big personalities. And it seems your money went a lot further back then. Yes. Even though I believe, you know, things always cost what they cost and you, you pay what you pay. But, you know, at that time though, you look at, uh, Andrew Carnegie and the amount of wealth that he had compared to the economic conditions of the time. Yes. Is mind blowing. A lot of people don't realize The percentages, I believe, and just how vastly these uber rich people were compared to everybody else.
2: It would be interesting, you know, and I'm sure somebody's done it, be interesting to compare that wealth uh, from the top and the bottom of society in America at that time to say today to like Bezos, Buffett or uh, Bill Gates and the lower end. And if there's a wider margin there, I think there might be, but still it's all relative. These folks had unattainable, unimaginable amounts of money. Well, 5 years later, in 1924, William Whitlock, I remember
1: he is the pharmacist who he and his wife Sadie Bell owned Whitlock's Pharmacy in Spokane. So, dude okay, he's in the he's in the meds business. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Whitlocks, they sold that property to Rudolph A. Hahn, H A H N, and his wife Sylvia D. Harm, H A R M, for $11,000 and 33 cents. Got to to have that 33 cents there.
2: I guess that was recorded somewhere on a deed, but so today, in today's dollars, because I like to do that every now and then, I'm not going to do that for (laughs) all the numbers here, but that (laughs) would be 165,000. The
1: deal's not going through if you don't have the 33 cents. I'll wait here. You go back home. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't own it for very long uh, either, the Whitlocks. I'm not sure what they moved on to, but uh, who knows what they experienced there. Maybe nothing. But get this. So Rudolph Hahn here is the character that next buys the house with uh, he he and his wife, uh, who at the time was 32 years younger than he was.
2: And not only at the time, but the whole time they were married, she would have been 32 years. She younger. didn't. Are you sure she didn't catch up? Yeah, I don't think she got up.
1: All right. Okay. I'll just, I'll go with that for the moment till we yeah. prove otherwise. Yeah. Well, you wonder what she saw in him, but he, he did seem like a fun-loving eccentric. Uh, he certainly did love to party. Ooh, we've got a partying theme here. So uh, yes, he also loved to party. And uh, as with some dude you meet, he seems a bit sketchy in just when he describes what he does. Well, well, he was previously employed as a barber and then educated as a, quote, electrotherapeutic technician, end quote. Rudolf Hahn called himself Dr. Hahn. So well, that's a, well, you got to wonder about that when a guy calls himself doctor. And his explanation was that, quote, his medical diploma and license to practice medicine were earned after he took a correspondence course. So, yeah, did it by letters. Yes. Back and forth. Yes. Got a medical degree. Uh, I would like to take this moment, though, to give him some credit because in the Middle Ages, he would have been a perfect doctor. Right. Read some parchment, boom,
2: you're a doctor. Well, and at this time, it was considered a legitimate medical license, yes. uh, not as no, no, revered, I, but it was, no. it was considered real. No, and, and there was another uh, a character, we were just talking about this
1: before we started recording, and I can't remember, he's one historical figure who essentially in the early 19th century, I believe in England, uh, kind of did the same thing where you could take some courses and uh, practice medicine legally. With the limited training that you had, and that was uh, not full medical school, but just uh, correspondence or yeah, that was pretty common back then. and was not really looked down upon, but then it's like, well, you, you kind of can practice medicine. If you were very exacting about your uh, medical treatment, you might look elsewhere. But uh, at the time, he wasn't then breaking the law. Well, even though he was never registered in Washington State as a medical doctor, Han made a small fortune in his electrotherapy practice, and in the Wilbur house, the Hans were raucous and loud, dedicating their lives to extravagant pranks and parties. Fun-loving couple. Uh, at least he wasn't some old fuddy-duddy old dude she married. He liked to kick it up a notch. Well, during the Roaring Twenties, the nights were rare when there wasn't a loud party going on, attended by at least 50 people. And again, like, oh God, that's the, the nightmare neighbors that you got. <laughs> They, they, and the worst part about it, that the dude's got money. Yes. <laughs> like, he can afford this crap going on at all hours of the night, and uh, you complain to the cops, and there's not much that can be done about it.
2: They go talk to him, and he keeps doing it. Well, I read in several places the police turned a blind eye to his, uh, you know, because he had yeah. connections. Connections in cash, probably. And, uh, and he knew
1: people. That's the other strange thing about this. Uh, notables at the time. The well-to-do guest list included flying ace Jimmy Doolittle that you and I have heard of, who stayed in the house for a week during a 1926 air show and flew planes above and around the house, frightening guests and neighbors with his acrobatic stunts, and dives in his plane.
2: Now, Scott, refresh us all because he is a war hero. He is a war hero. And I want to dive down on this a little bit more later, but he is the Doolittle of Doolittle's raiders who flew an infamous raid over Tokyo in World War II, which was after this, after this was taking place. So yeah. as in the run up yeah. to that, he was partying hard here in Spokane and dive bombing this house. Um uh, when they were having the parties, which if that's not Gatsby-esque, I don't know what is. He's having is. They're having these huge parties. There's loud music. There's, you know, the yeah. swimming pool. All this stuff's happening. And the party is being dive-bombed by what will soon become a World War II flying ace. So it's just <laughs> unbelievable. Just amazing. You had to invent your
1: fun back then. You know, yeah. it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure there were uh, laser light effects yet or any of this other stuff. So, uh, hey, who here can fly a plane? Yeah. Take a couple of dive-bombs and spins around the house if you would. Yeah. Probably left from Geiger Field, which is the uh, the local uh, regional airport there.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you want to go to the party, how long does it take you to go down to the airstrip, get in the plane, take it up, yeah. do all the tricks, <laughs> go back, land, get in your car, right. come back to the party and be like, that was me. You know, it's... I would- <laughs>
1: I was just thinking that, hey, you guys want to see something fun? Here, hold my hold no, my jet. No, no, hold no. Go first.
2: Go before yeah. the drinks, please. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I'm,
1: sure, I'm not going to be spurch uh, His 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 Yes, we don't know anything here, about Doolittle. But, we're just you know, um,
2: trying to make a story fun here. But yeah. Think about this in the course of human events and everything being connected. Think about like if he'd have been doing those antics and he'd made a mistake yeah. and uh, didn't survive, the whole course of World War II would have been changed. Yeah. If you look at Doolittle's Raid. Yes, yes. Well, back to the Roaring
1: Twenties here. During one party, it was said that Han drove his car into his swimming pool in front of the house. And later, it had been filled with dirt so it wouldn't happen again.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to accidentally, I don't want to drive in there again. That was, <laughs> you know what? That was not fun. Let's, you know, fill it up.
1: <laughs> Valet, here's my keys. I'm yeah. just going to uh, just, just step out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's how you end a good party. It's that thing where everyone, in the movies anyway, everyone holds their breath and then after about 20 seconds, he comes up and everyone cheers and claps really loud. Yeah, Yeah.
1: cheers and claps and he didn't spill a drop of his drink. So This just shows you how kind of wild it was back then. Uh, You asked me about this. It's like, well, if you have a big pool and it's pretty brand new, why would you fill it with dirt? It's like, well... Spokane is a very temperate climate, so it's not like having a pool here in sunny Southern California or Arizona mm-hmm. uh, where you're going to have a tremendous amount of sun. It does get hot, and it's very nice and sunny during the summer, but you know it's a shorter period of time, so not as big of a deal. Well, uh, then Mr. Hahn got into horse racing. I mean, he loved fast cars and, and boats and planes and all that, but horse racing took his fancy, and he let his racehorses graze on the lawn in front of the home where the pool had been. <laughs> Because <laughs> you got the neighbors like, oh, thank God he's filling in the pool. At least he's not going to be making noise. And next thing you know, it's a pasture. Yeah, right. With racehorses. It's as if the the parties in the planes weren't enough to drive his neighbors crazy and mad. Get this. It just gets better. Han's love of loud radio finally set the neighborhood residents complaining to the Spokane City Council <laughs> and the county code enforcement officials. Uh, because next to his garage, Han installed multi-story radio towers over which he received worldwide radio broadcasts oh my god and in addition to the towers he mounted large speakers in the tall pines behind his house and boomed his radio from early morning
2: to well past midnight i feel like perpetually in history i'm the guy that lives next door and stands in the yard angrily angrily pointing at my watch (laughs) when all i really want to do is be invited over yeah (laughs) do you know what time it is i am trying to sleep
1: i will be quiet for a (laughs) flask of gin sir yeah well uh i'm I'm complaining about the guy who lives in the in the apartment building next to me, and you know we have that little alleyway and uh I think he's an older gentleman who's probably hard of hearing, but his window is always wide open, especially in the summer yeah and uh it's n p r from about seven in the morning until uh the late evening. Crank. Not the late evening. Uh, it's just loud. Yeah, the only yeah. good thing about it is that I I do love NPR shows. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it's on the radio, like, wait wait so don't tell
2: me. Like, yeah, <laughs>
1: but I can't I can't hear everything, so it's just right. murmur, and I can hear laughter, you know, on the, and yeah. it's just not ideal. So Han here just wanted to hear his radio wherever he was on in the his... property.
2: You know what? I have been to fancy people's homes with speakers in yeah. the trees, so oh, yeah, I get, this guy yeah. must have been the pioneer here.
1: Yeah, he just wanted to hear radio. The problem is that you could hear it for blocks away. One place I (laughs) but i
0: don't know if it was really Mm -hmm. that loud
1: it's just crazy and you know you thought the the old uh, crazy guy who's got the ham radio tower in his backyard you thought that was unsightly at least he's inside on the radio you can't hear it it just looks like a 30-foot tower with guy wires coming down and just you know maybe he's an eyesore but at least he's quiet So continuing on with the narrative, and once again, want to give a big shout out to Linda Yeomans, who made a terrific write-up here, which is – again, that's why it's so fun to read when you would normally think it was just a dry county commissioner or or zoning report that you had to file – Yeah, this house is very important. Linda, you need to be writing books if you aren't already, so. (laughs) Well, continuing on to the narrative, in 1945, Olga Marquardt, a wealthy Coeur d'Alene mining widow, bought the Wilbur house for just $21,000 and 38 cents. Again, write that into the check because we need that 38 cents to make this legal here.
2: I feel like it's losing value. I'm not going to do the (laughs) lookup on the adjusted dollars here, but I, I, I feel like it should have been more if it had been being kept up better.
1: Yeah, now see, that I could put a down payment on. 21 grand, right? Uh, Well, just before she purchased the property, Spokane County tried to buy it for use as a retirement center for, quote, 40 old age pensioners, end quote, but county zoning requirements could not be met and the transaction was aborted. The property was again sold in 1947 and it changed hands several times after that and was eventually left vacant and unprotected, which resulted in vandalism, damage and deterioration. So, in 1992, Dr. Frank Ditto, a Spokane physician, and his wife, Stephanie Ditto, bought the property for $181,000. Okay. That's a pretty good bargain for back yeah. then. Yeah. Because, it, it, again, it's almost four acres. It's a Well, lot yeah. Of and
2: it, it, at this point, it had been vandalized. I mean, at, you we're talking about right. a major fixer-upper here that's going to need yes. probably a ton of work.
1: It had been in deterioration for quite a while. And uh, yeah, so that's a starting price. You're going to put another probably $50,000 in worth of uh, repairs. Well, the Ditto spent $115,000 for remodels to the house (laughs) and for reversing the effects of damage and deferred maintenance to the house, garage, and caretaker's cottage and grounds. And so that's another thing I always, always tell Scott. It's like, I could inherit or just uh, win a giant mansion, but I could not afford to keep it up, much like the Katy Perry's uh, di- Diocese Mansion convent yeah. at the top of the hill in my neighborhood, yeah. uh, which is beautiful. Man, I would love to ghost hunt that place. Maybe we should ring up Katy if,
2: she, if she'd uh, be willing to let us you know, the, My wife did conference. write a sketch for her at SNL, but I don't think we There have you go. That's the end. Yeah. Uh, the famous it's, that's sketch. It's been made of, into... Uh, a gif many, many times. So she's wearing an Elmo <laughs> shirt. I'll leave it at that. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yes.
1: With large eyes. I uh, yeah. I do remember that, but it's a, a same era and quite a storied Hollywood history that goes along with that place too. But I could not afford to even pay the pool guy. Yeah. So that's the problem with owning a big uh, property with a lot of grounds on it. So anyway, th- that's the pertinent history of the house. And now it's in private hands and we're respecting the privacy of the current owners. But as you can see, it's had quite an amazing history. Indeed it has.
3: I'm
4: Kelly Barron's Brink from the podcast True Crime IRL. And when I'm not talking about murders, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
2: So that is the really wonderful historical backdrop on this home. What we need to talk about now is why has the home gotten onto our radar? We haven't really mentioned that. Great parties, big stuff mm-hmm. happening, all that. But the other thing that's happening is that in Spokane, this home is locally famous for being haunted. And there's another interesting thing happening. And, and this is where our guest comes in tonight, Amanda Paulson, who we mentioned at the top of the show uh, from Pretty FN, that's the letters F and N, spooky. You, if you Google that, she comes up on most platforms under that, Pretty F and spooky. She's going to come on tonight and talk a little bit about how the locals perceive the home, the stories that she's heard around the area. Kind of an interesting take on these stories being pushed down a little bit in Spokane, which I thought was fascinating. She's also had some really amazing personal experiences at other sites that you've heard us talk about on the show before. So we'll be talking about that, too. But coming back to the the Wilbur Hahn mansion. These are some of the things that people claim to have seen. And again, here, we're actually referencing L.E. Bragg's book, Lynn Bragg, B-R-A-G-G, Washington Myths and Legends, The True Stories Behind History's Mysteries.
1: Uh, Yes. And she is a Washington State native, and her books usually are about the Pacific Northwest. And she has several other books, too. One called More Than Petticoats, Remarkable Washington Women and More Than Petticoats, Remarkable Idaho Women, both uh, from the publisher Globe Pequo. As well as the picture books, A River Lost, Heart of the Palouse, and Seattle, City by the Sound. And she lives near Seattle.
2: There you go. So uh, speaking of more than petticoats, that's I think that's the case you would look at here with uh, yes. Sarah, who started out in this house. The, the whole reason the house was built, even if she didn't build it herself, it was built with her right. money because she was had – this a uh, massive fortune from that mine, which she funded. And when her husband died, he, he or well, he wasn't her husband. He's like, let's get married because I'm about to die. We got to get I want to get this back to you. And so they yeah. did that. And it, the rest is history, as they say. But let's talk about the haunting. What is going on here with this house? Well, the stories are that people have seen the apparition of a woman at the top of the stairs. There have been rumors of screaming coming from inside the house that occupants, uh, prior occupants, not the current residents, allegedly reported uh, angry, arguing voices or sounds of laughing, like at a party. Mm -hmm. There have been allegedly blood stains appearing and disappearing on the floors. Mm, That's curious. Yeah, yes. And when we go back to the history, and it really all points to Dr. Hahn of all the prior residents, there were in this home, and we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about these coming up here shootings. There was a suicide. There was the electroshock treatment going on. There were illegal operations, and I'm talking about surgery here in terms of Mm -hmm. operations, by someone that in today's terms might not be licensed as a doctor. Back then it was acceptable, but he was, Dr. Han was the mad doctor of South Hill, the neighborhood where this home is, or as we've said tonight, the mad doctor of Spokane. Also, the house is supposed to have secret tunnels, which The theory was that that was so that these patients could come and go anonymously or be secreted in and out of the house because he was performing abortions for wealthy farmers from the region. People were coming from miles around for that to happen.
1: Right. And, you know, Spokane's not just a hick town full of yokels. Certainly there are yokels there. I've seen them. But there's a good portion of people who are very wealthy and influential in the area. And if you think about farmers from the Palouse area, south of Spokane, where they grow uh, terrific uh, uh, wheat... A lot of those guys are millionaires. Yes. When you get a healthy harvest, you can make a lot of money. So it's, it's seasonal, of course, but these are people that uh, some of them are pretty well-to-do and influential in the area. So there's a lot of money coming through. Like I said before, it's a history of mining and railroads, uh, timber, all the industries of the Pacific Northwest going on there. And that was certainly a part of it. And so there are some pretty spectacular homes on Spokane South Hill. So when you're speaking of someone from a prominent family needing an abortion or an operation that you didn't want to advertise, it's best if you secret them in and back out again. And another thing to consider, prohibition at the time. Where have we seen and talked about tunnels underground? Resurrection Mary. Exactly.
2: Yes. Where under the uh, supposedly Al Capone's clubs there. By the way, uh, for listeners who are new to the show or don't know our back catalog, the Resurrection Mary series uh, was a series we did on a famous hitchhiking ghost from the Chicago area. Right. And all along Archer Avenue and some of the
1: establishments there. And of course, you're talking about Chicago gangsters of the era and the roaring 20s and 30s reportedly were running booze through underground tunnels. And if somebody was acting up and needed to be spirited away, you could easily dispose of a body also. That was also purported. Not exactly fact, as we know, because it's kind of hard to uh, nail that down, but you do wonder if some yeah. of the uh, underground tunnels were used for that kind of business.
2: And I think I mentioned recently, uh, one of my favorite stories about those tunnels in Resurrection Mary was that one supposedly came up inside of a mausoleum. Yeah, That's exactly. an easy place to sneak in and out of, I guess. Uh, easy place
1: to... <laughs> as long as the uh, door's well, unlocked. They yeah. got a dead body. <laughs> that may, I'm not sure if they did cremation there, but it's an easy route to that. Also, yeah. if you're thinking about Prohibition at the time and you're having wild parties at a house, having a priest hole... A tunnel that will get you out quickly should the, the cops bust or raid the place. You go behind the secret wall, you get in the tunnel, you pop out uh, two acres away. Yeah. And, and you, can, you can then walk home or run to your car. In another jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Yeah, but the idea, though, is that uh, if, if shady things are going on, tunnels are a good thing. And also yeah. secret panels and secret walls. And
2: also that leads to what of ill-gotten gain? Buried treasure. And there's a rumor that Dr. Hahn had buried treasure hidden on the site somewhere. It was unverified, but he had an absurd amount of wealth from his operations. And when I say operations, I'm using that word in two ways. The operations, the actual surgical operations he was conducting, the illegal abortions, uh, also the electroshock therapy, the other things he was doing. I had some speculation relating to prohibition that we'll talk about here in a minute, but before we get to that, Forrest, I just wanted to let you know that because you said the word yokel, I was uh, greatly concerned that maybe the word had been canceled or that we would be canceled. Oh, I'm sorry. But apparently yes. it's safe to say yokel well, for now. and But you know, <laughs> two years from now, when people look this up again and they'll say, they said yokel and we're done. So I just wanted to, on the Wikipedia page about yokel, which was the only place I could think to look it up, it, it said in the British TV show, The Two Ronnies, it was asserted that despite political correctness, it is possible <laughs> to poke fun at yokels as no one sees themselves. As being one. So well, that's true. And uh <laughs> yeah. another thing that gets me off
1: the hook and write all the emails you want, but I'm from the area. So <laughs> I, I know the people. I've been through yes. all the towns in the in the region. I born and raised there, around that area. And I will tell you, yes, like everywhere else, there's uh you have a mix of people and of all uh, creeds and colors and whatnot.
2: And uh, yeah, and then some of them are going to be fun-loving uh, goofballs. Yeah, nobody's more fun at a party than a yokel. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> right. Let's come back around. We, we covered a lot of data here. So I wanted to go back over some things just so it sticks. It, remembering now that the house was built for Sarah Smith, a widow and heir to the empire built from the Hecla Silver Mine by her husband that when she was remarried because she had been married before. Her husband, Ralston Jack Wilbur, was 16 years younger than her. That's the other thing that's interesting. I want to point that out. I wanted to come back to her first husband, James R. Smith or John Smith. This is from the Hecla Mining Company's webpage today. It is still around. Quote James R. Smith was the first president of the company. In nineteen oh four Hecla Mining Company moved its headquarters from Washington to Idaho. There's also a timeline there that goes all the way from the time they started up to present day. I just want to read from this era where uh, Smith would have been involved. In the 1910s, it says Hecla's last dozen mules from a much larger team once used underground to haul ore cars and supplies were retired thanks to the availability of electrical power. Also says there, Hecla stock begins trading on the New York Curb Exchange later the American Stock Exchange, on September 23rd, 1915. With the listing, Hecla begins printing an annual report, which previously had been a typewritten statement from James McCarthy's handwritten draft, one of the early directors or presidents of the, of the company, I suppose. To bring us up to the present day, in 2020, Hecla hit annual revenue of $691.9 million, the highest in the company's history. Another record was also set in 2020. The all-injury frequency rate, AIFR, reached 1.22%, the lowest in company history. So I guess Hmm. they're running pretty safe operations now. Additionally, Hecla is known as mining a third of all the silver produced in the United States. Now, and it's not just I want to be clear about this. You have to read the rest of the history to know this, which you folks obviously haven't done. But I did take a look at it. It's not all based on just the mines right there. Near Spokane. Since this company started, they have bought, acquired, and merged with lots of mining companies all over the world. They have operations mm-hmm. everywhere now. So that's how their revenue is so great. But I thought that was interesting. Um, I wanted to come back also to some more details about Mr. Han, Dr. Han. Dr. Han moved into the house with his second wife, a maiden name, Fly, Sylvia Fly. She's uh, listed somewhere, but we went to Ancestry and looked this up as her last name being I L Y. But most of the sources Mm -hmm. said that it was fly. She was 32 years younger than him. A 1920 census shows Randolph as being 53 and her being 21 uh, in 1920. His first wife was a woman named Annie Theis, T-H-E-I-S. It's also written in uh, some entries online as TICO, T-I-C-O, but I believe that it's Theis uh, based on research Mm -hmm. on ancestry again. Annie Thiss was born in 1898 she married Randolph Hahn on January 28th of 1919 when she was just 21. We found conflicting reports about these details uh, with regard to the kids, but it it seems that Annie and Han had five children, Grace, Myrtle, Harold, Rudolph, and Florence. But in the 1920 census, those kids were no longer living with him now that he was with Sylvia Fly. So it seems like he left that whole first family and all those kids behind, uh, most of whom, although one seemed to appear to have passed away rather young, the rest of them seemed to live a pretty, pretty long time into the 60s and 70s in some cases. So they put about $50,000 in improvement into the house. That would be $800,000 in today's dollars. They added the swimming pool, which they then, I guess, took out after he drove into it. They added gardens with fountains, if that's accurate, ornate statues. Again, secret walls and passages, supposedly secret panels and passages. And again, his income, according to most of the historical information we could find, came from electroshock therapy for wealthy clients. I wanted to look into that a little bit. And here's what's mm-hmm. interesting about that. They said it cured everything, including cancer. And Ellie Bragg writes in her book, with her chapter on this house, that he would say one drop of blood would allow electroshock therapists to diagnose maladies and then prescribe shock treatment. The income from this was up to $2,000 a week, or today, $32,000 equivalent. Mm. The Secret Abortions for Wealthy Clients, also bringing in a lot of money. He loved, as we said, fast cars, boats, racing boats, race horses. He had multi-car garage with always at least two extravagant and stylish cars. We told you about the parties and the radio towers. Mm-hmm. Alcohol also, again, flowing during Prohibition. That was from 1920 to 1933. I want to read some information from an article by Paula Mejia uh, connected to Atlas Obscura from their website, Gastro Obscura, which is pretty fascinating. Back at the time, I guess she was an editor there. She's no longer writing for them. Uh, We have a link to uh, a current profile for her if you want to check that out. But the article was called The Lucrative Business of Prescribing Booze During Prohibition. And I thought this was interesting because I wondered if there might be a connection here to additional income for Dr. Hahn. So this is about medical liquor, and this is how these prescriptions worked, and this is Paula Mejia's quote from her article. Physicians wrote an estimated 11 million prescriptions a year throughout the 1920s, and Prohibition Commissioner John F. Kramer even cited one doctor who wrote 475 prescriptions for whiskey in one day. It wasn't (laughs) tough for people to write and fill counterfeit prescriptions at pharmacies either. Naturally, bootleggers bought prescription forms from crooked doctors and mounted widespread scams. In 1931, 400 pharmacists and 1,000 doctors were caught in a scam where doctors sold signed prescription forms to bootleggers. Just 12 doctors and 13 pharmacists were indicted and the ones charged faced a one-time $50 fine. Oh. Yeah, so it's not not too bad. Selling alcohol through drugstores became so much of a lucrative open secret that it's name-checked in works such as The Great Gatsby. Historians speculate that Charles R. Walgreen, never heard of him, right, of Walgreen's fame, expanded from 20 stores to a staggering 525 (laughs) stores during the 1920s thanks to medicinal alcohol sales. Ah, so well, I, I was, had to wonder hmm. if Dr. Hahn was maybe doing that as well, because I mean, no one talks about it, but I'm not sure right. it would have made the press.
1: Yeah, it's secretive stuff, and uh, it, but it seems, uh, at least in the San Francisco area, shoplifting is steadily declining the Walgreens empire.
2: Yes, but like, here's a little modern-day perspective. I want to read yeah. this article. This is from USA Today. This was published on June 11th, 2013. uh byline is Donna Linewand. Ledger or Legger, L E G E R. The headline is Walgreens, Mm it's 2013 now, to pay 80 million for oxycodone violations. History repeats itself. Walgreens, the nation's largest drugstore chain, will pay 80 million in fines, which is, by the way, nothing to them, 80 million in fines to end a DEA probe into allegations it allowed millions of controlled substances, including the highly addictive painkiller oxycodone, to reach the black market. The settlement is the largest civil penalty paid under the Controlled Substances Act. In Drug Enforcement Administration history, Walgreens committed an unprecedented number, in quotes, of record-keeping and dispensing violations. Quoting Kermit Crawford here, the president of Walgreens at the time, as the largest pharmacy chain in the U.S., we are fully committed to doing our part to prevent prescription drug abuse. We will also continue to advocate for solutions that involve all parties, including leaders in the community, physicians, pharmacies, distributors, and regulators to play a role in finding practical solutions that combat the abuse of controlled substances and ensure patients access to critical medications. Yeah, Walgreens has taken steps to enhance its ordering and inventory systems and train its employees to ensure appropriate dispensing of controlled substances. So hand in the cookie jar again from a chain that may have gotten where it is on yeah. the backs of illegal whisk prescriptions back then. And then if uh, Dr. Hahn was able to make prescriptions – Or able to cash in on that, and he had all the booze flowing at the parties and everything. It's reasonable to think that some of his income might have come from that, although no one suggested that. I'm speculating. It's cold speculation
1: here, but... Yes, but I I think it's a reasonable suspicion. Look, every industry that's involved in this, certainly that's news that came out today. I heard uh, driving over here. The pharmaceutical industry, yes, was in partnership with a lot of shady doctors who were getting kickbacks for creating the opioid crisis that we're facing now for the last decade. So it's, you're right. It's nothing new where there's a lot of bucks to be made. People are going to make them. And when it comes to Han, that's why people were speculating is that this wasn't all above board that maybe there's a lot of cash, silver, gold, something in a strong box buried somewhere in some hidden chamber on the property. Who knows? But a lot of people did that back then, especially when the gold standard ended. A lot of people buried jars of gold coins because you were supposed to turn those back in, but they didn't want to. Yeah. So uh, it's funny, my, uh, an old history professor, uh, uh, Mr. Trainer. he said his, his father, who was uh, elderly at the time, would spend about an hour every day in his retirement looking for a jar of double gold eagles That he squirreled away in the house somewhere and could not remember where they were. Oh, my goodness. Because he did it back when the gold standard ended and people had to turn in their, uh, they were supposed to turn in their gold coins or exchange them, of course. And uh, a lot of people didn't. And uh, he just couldn't remember where it was. So every day, yeah, he spent a little time looking for it. So, yeah, it's not unlikely that there is some ill-gotten gains buried somewhere on the property that he made a lot more than was uh, known and also using every avenue to turn a shady buck. Because you got to figure, look, if you're doing uh, underground abortions and electroshock therapy, this quackery, you're not going to say... Oh, illegal booze? No, no, that, that's across the line. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I, no, no, I will not do that. I respect prohibition. Like, of course, you're, you're also throwing parties there. Why do you think yeah. the parties were so raucous? It's not because people were amped up on hot jazz. They're drunk. Yeah. And back in the day, yeah, and especially that's how you also get celebrities over, like this guy's got booze and plenty
2: of it. Yeah, and speaking of celebrities, I did want to circle back around to something that I promised we'd touch on downstream, and that's James Doolittle, who we yeah. mentioned in Doolittle's Raiders, who was at the one die-bombing the house, I guess, in an aircraft. Now, I'm not sure what the plane was. It did precede his fame, but just a, a brief overview of Doolittle. I'm just going to read the first paragraph on him. From his Wikipedia page, James Harold Doolittle, uh, born December 14th, 1896, died September 27th, 1993, which would have put him in his 20s at the time that Dr. Hahn lived in the house in um, Spokane. Doolittle was an American military general and aviation pioneer who received the Medal of Honor for his daring raids on Japan during World War II. He also made early coast-to-coast flights, won many flying races, and helped develop instrument flying. But what he became famous for in World War II was called the Doolittle Raid. Again, this from Wikipedia, also known as the Tokyo Raid, was an air raid on the 18th of April, 1942, by the U.S. on the Japanese capital, Tokyo, and other places on Honshu during World War II. It was the first air operation to strike the Japanese archipelago. This raid demonstrated that the Japanese mainland was vulnerable to American air attacks, served as retaliation for the attack on Pearl Harbor, and provided an important boost to American morale. It was planned and led by and named after Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, later a lieutenant general in the U.S. Army Air Forces and the U.S. Air Force Reserve. At that time, they were flying B-25B Mitchell medium bombers. I don't know mm-hmm. what kind of aircraft he supposedly had that he was flying over Dr. Hahn's house or the Hahn <laughs> right. mansion. Yeah. There is uh, some pictures of him on his own Wikipedia page with a an aircraft called the Curtis R-3C2, which is mm. a seaplane mm-hmm. uh, that he won a race in 1925 in so it could have been that plane but i don't know if there if he was taken off and landing on a body of water you know which there are plenty of them around spokane oh that's true yes
1: sure sure uh lands it's the land of uh, a lot of lakes a lot of lakes a lot of bodies of water around there so it's possible but uh and i i doubt he would uh, have access to a military craft Uh, no not back then yeah yeah uh, that seems unlikely You know, people don't realize how daring that raid was. One, they had to strip the planes down to the very bare essentials to get rid of as much weight as possible. And also, we didn't have long-range bombers, so they could only go one way, loaded to the gills with fuel, which means that they all had to ditch in China, which they knew they'd be possibly killed or captured.
2: Yeah, and the strangest thing about that is, you know, I've heard of Doolittle's raid, but I didn't know what it was, because it's an easy name to remember, Dr. Doolittle, whatever. and (laughs) uh, But... Three days before we were recording this, I was uh, prepping for something or whatever. We were doing shows, recording, doing a research. I was worn out, and I went to go to bed down in my room. I turned the TV on, and I'm just flipping channels. I'm like, I'm just going to watch something for 10 minutes till I get sleepy. I flipped over to HBO. Midway is on, the movie that mm-hmm. I, I think uh, came out in 2000. Let's see. You got it right here. 2019. Oh, but talking about, about the 70s the one that I grew up with. Yeah, remake yeah. Of. It's a yeah. remake of that one, I guess, or or another version of it. And that movie's on, and I saw about 10 minutes of it, and the 10 minutes I saw, it's just coincidence. Flipping channels, I haven't flipped over to the HBO channels in literally months, and i have flipped over to that. I watched the 10 minutes of the movie, and it's Aaron Eckhart as Jimmy Doolittle <laughs> doing the Tokyo Raid, the Doolittle Raider raid. And it's like, I... would And I didn't even have the volume up. It was so like low. And I just was sort of looking at my phone and watching this. And I was like, I got kind of interested in it. I was like, oh, maybe I'll come back and watch this movie. So I turned it off. I didn't even realize what I had been watching until two days later when we were researching this show. And I just, it's, those are the synchronicities that you start to think, God, that's weird. How was it that I just watched this, you know, this dramatization of this raid that winds up being integral and connected to the story of this house and this character who went to the house so much during the partying era of it. So it's fa- it was fascinating to me. Maybe it's nothing. I'm looking for things where nothing's there, I'm sure. But, uh,
0: <laughs> I'll take
1: it. Yeah.
2: You'll take it. You, you'll well, well, take it. I, well, it, the, uh, uh, no, the movie was, uh,
1: I think it may have been in sense around, but it was a formative movie growing up. And the Battle of Midway itself uh, that you're talking about later was uh, that turned the tide of
2: the war in the South Pacific. Well, and that's what I was saying. If he'd have died goofing around at that house, at Dr. Hahn's house, the whole course of World War II probably would have changed. Yeah. It's fascinating when you look back on that. Okay, I want to come back for a minute, though, to Dr. Hahn and the illegal abortions. That was an ongoing thing that he was doing in the basement of that house. And there were times when it led to trouble for him. Well, it turns out in October of 1929, he actually was charged with an illegal abortion on a high school girl from Idaho. The allegation states that I think she nearly died. I'm not sure if she did. I don't I don't think she passed away. She was a wealthy farmer's daughter from neighboring Idaho, not too far away. In court, he admitted that his medical diploma and license was via a correspondence course. And we're, we've talked a little bit about that. I'll be talking about that more meant a different thing back then than it does now, but still, that's how he learned to practice Mm -hmm. medicine. And he said in court also that he had studied x-rays and specialized in, quote, electrotherapeutics. So Mm. whatever happened with this trial, at the end of it, he was acquitted for insufficient evidence. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of reasons that would just be speculation on our part, but you could say uh, wealthy influence, you could say people wanting this to go away, you could say just not the standards of evidence that we have today. Yeah. Uh, and the little that we know about it, because in some cases they're bringing back electric shock therapy.
2: Yeah, I know. I looked that up today and I was yeah. surprised they've renamed it or rebranded it a little bit. I mean, one yeah. floor over the cuckoo's nest, that's what you think of when you think about the horrors of shock therapy. Mm-hmm. But it's coming around, it's coming full circle again. And, you know, it's, I was mentioning this story to uh, my wife, Emily last night and talking about how dr han would say that he could diagnose your maladies uh, including cancer with one drop of blood and then cure you with the electroshock therapy and emily yeah. immediately went oh theranos and it's like oh yeah yeah <laughs> That's exactly, uh, yeah, that yeah. was that whole thing, right? They put a blood yeah. in the machine and it told you everything that was wrong with you, a drop of blood. Yeah. It's right. History repeats itself. There's a lot of recurring themes in this. Yeah. Well, and, and here's another thing I wanted to touch on, which I thought this was pretty amazing too. This had to do with the divorces between Rudolf Hahn and Sylvia. Mm-hmm. They actually filed for divorce against each other three separate times. It's like the War of the Roses here. She actually filed in 1932, claiming that he abused her. And there was evidence of that. And she said, and this is going to come back, so I want you to pay attention to this. She apparently said during that divorce proceeding that Dr. Han threatened to run her through with a sword and had chased her through the house with it. He had a massive collection of antique weapons. And uh, so that might be some foreshadowing there. So uh, anyway, they divorced in 32, remarried in 33. According to Ellie Bragg, I think that uh, Sylvia was quoted as saying, Keeping in touch by phone was too expensive. So that was the reason they got remarried.
1: You know what? Again, nothing changes. This sounds like, let me ask you this. You don't have to answer, honestly. <laughs> have you ever met one of those couples, you know, and they're kind of peripheral friends and you just like, I wish they would get divorced. <laughs> they're just so tumultuous. And yet they keep coming back together. And, you know, the other groups of couples with friends are like, oh my God, you guys argue so much. Just yeah. stop this. Yeah. But there is some weird attraction. Where as much as they seem to hate each other, they can't. You know, it's a violent mix of uh, attraction and repulsion.
2: It's like that old Star Trek with that dude that has like the face is like black and white, and then he's yeah. trapped it for eternity in the in the tiny UFO in the time rift. Anyway, I <sighs> get um, two months after they remarried, Doctor Han appeared in court with broken ribs, and Sylvia mm. admitted. Her guilt to that, that she had broken his ribs. Uh, She got a 15-day suspended sentence. Uh, Dr. Hahn had no culpability uh, that time around. And in 1934, he filed for divorce, and then they reconciled again. Oh, boy. They deserve each other in a way. It's a yo-yo thing going on here. Well, now we'd like to bring in our local expert on this topic. Her name is Amanda Paulson, and she's a paranormal investigator who actually lives in the Spokane area, and she agreed to come on and have a conversation with us about not only this house, but some of the other things going on in the area, and she's got some pretty cool stories to tell. So we're going to queue up just a little bit of that conversation now. Okay, so Amanda, thank you so much for joining us, especially on short notice. We only just reached out to you like two days ago. We really appreciate you coming on the show tonight.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: Before we get into tonight's topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became intertwined with the Spokane area?
4: Okay, so um, my family lived in Montana. I uh, moved to Spokane about 11 years ago. I hate to age myself, but I I was only 20. And uh, I just moved to Spokane to move to a closer, bigger city than Billings, Montana, at the time, I thought Spokane was a big city. I was really excited to be here. <laughs> as far as me as a paranormal investigator, I started investigating in 2008 after like a lifelong of paranormal experiences, starting when I was like seven years old and uh, investigated with a team in 08, then moved to Spokane and then started investigating as a solo investigator, leading to my work as Pretty Up and Spooky uh, about, gosh, two and a half, three years ago now.
2: So what's your take on the part of town that the Wilberhan house is in the, the South Hill
4: the South Hill in general is a pretty spooky neighborhood to be honest lots of really old houses really old money like you said from mining and railroad money but yeah seventeenth avenue in particular um it's a big avenue I feel like I'm not giving away too much there I mean anyone could look this up but seventeenth Avenue where this house is located I have been on and I have creeped my way up as far as I can get to the house before, um, to the lawn. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty spooky place.
2: Now, Forrest, I just wanted to come back here and talk a little bit about Sylvia's death, Mm -hmm. her suicide. Dr. Hahn, I guess, had said that he was outside when he heard a gunshot. He rushes in to find Sylvia lying in bed with a bullet wound through her right ear and, and a Luger in her hand. Mm. The police show up, uh, when they get there, there's racehorses on the lawn. Dr. Hahn is exceedingly drunk. Author L.E. Bragg states uh, the bedroom had multiple bullet holes in the wall and that the lock had been shot off the door. So the cops interrogate Hahn, but eventually the coroner's jury concludes that her wound was self-inflicted and he was free to go. And it was ultimately declared a suicide. And according to the research that we found, part of that was due to the fact that there were powder burns on her hand. So it Mm -hmm. did seem like maybe she shot herself, but there's more going on here with these bullet holes. I wanted to talk to Amanda about that too.
4: Dr. Han's wife ended up committing suicide in the house. And that in itself is, is awful and um, is a shame, but when the FBI came and investigated the suicide, they found a bunch of bullet holes in the house. And um, I've heard, this might be rumor or lore in town, but I've heard that you can still see some of those holes in the in this house. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the current owners have patched up the holes now, but it's said that you can see some uh, remnants of it now. But while they were investigating the house, they found bullet holes in the walls, kind of leading them to believe that he could have possibly shot his wife. But what it was, they found, was that he would just shoot around his wife's head and try to scare her. They would get into really heated arguments and it just wasn't good between the two of them. And um, they ended up ruling it a suicide in the end.
2: The other thing that I think might've been misconstrued is I I don't think the electroshock therapy was taking place in the home. I I get the feeling that he had an office or something, but the thing that was Mm -hmm. happening there because it was illegal in the basement was the abortions. And there were rumors of drainage systems put into the house for that and that they were happening in the house. And there was a secret passage so that they could sneak these uh, clients in and out for Mm -hmm. these illegal procedures. We thought Amanda might know something about this too.
4: All I've heard about him performing procedures inside the actual house were the abortion procedures. Yeah, because he claims to be an electrotherapeutic technician, but I feel like he was really only doing anything out of his house for his abortion practice.
2: So what are some of the local stories that are about the house in terms of its paranormal status? What is its reputation locally?
4: I remember hearing that the uh, now owners do not like hearing about its like haunted history at all and i i remember too um it's rumored that the basement had elements of like a surgical room down there with with Uh draining in the but this could also again stories get passed around spooky stories about haunted houses of course but uh it's rumored that there's like these drainage parts of the basement but i do know when it was for sale uh when i looked at the pictures on zillow the basement looked to be completely refinished into like another apartment kind of down like with a kitchen and a bedroom and stuff so um i don't know if you could find that today but it said that they they had all of those features and they're still kind of recent yeah yeah
2: Yeah, here's the thing about the drainage, if their drainage was there, and it's a creepy element, I obviously, but it, it's not something that would still be there if that space downstairs was refinished. Doesn't mean that it's not underneath some concrete, though, or under... I mean, we've seen that mm-hmm. before in other research we've done where people say, oh, that's not there. I we went there, we didn't see it. And then if you find out later when the place is remodeled or demolished, it's like, no, it, it was there. It was just covered up. Think about 30 East Pontefract. You know, nobody was saying there's nothing walled up. There's yeah. no
1: skeletons. It's not that old. It's a council house until they get in the basement, I I think looking for a well or something. Yeah. And they find those really freaky four stones with the
2: crazy inscriptions on them. Yeah, exactly. The sigils. Yep. Yeah. And then you wonder, is that what's keying all this activity? Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that might be there and you don't know about it. And we're not saying that it is or it isn't, but yeah. folks seem to be pointing to the fact that well today you can't find any evidence of that
1: well again i'm I mean, going to keep saying this this is what's so personally intriguing about this house is that we don't know it's a private residence nobody's really been let in other than these things have been reported and it's coming off the street you know it's like people passing by have witnessed stuff so You just wonder what is really in this house. And maybe it's not all that. Maybe they say, like, hey, it's much ado about nothing, but then maybe not.
2: Well, it turns out in June of 1945, Dr. Hahn was arrested again for manslaughter, because this time somebody did die, and three counts of illegal abortions. This is the wife of a wealthy eastern Washington farmer passed away. Hahn at this time was 80. He was found guilty on two counts of abortion, and the defense argued that he was too old for prison. The judge did not let him off, but it was not a death penalty crime, and jail would equal death. So he commuted the sentence to probation and a $1,000 fine, which would be 16000 in today's dollars. And he had to promise, though, never to practice medicine again. And apparently he told the prosecutor to take all of his uh, tools, everything, and uh, donate it. And I don't have this here in my notes, but I seem to remember that it went to a medical school or something like that. And within a year, he was pretty unhappy. His uh, Sylvia was dead. He's now been prosecuted. He can't practice medicine anymore. And he was unhappy in the house. He didn't want to live it anymore. So he finally sold the Wilbur Hahn mansion. It passed from mm-hmm. his hands. There's been a lot of stories of these strange sounds being heard from the grounds, apparitions, that sort of thing. And some of that connects back to uh, this uh, group, allegedly, of these college age ghost hunters that supposedly stayed in the mm-hmm. house overnight. They heard uh, strange, inexplicable noises, uh, the distinct sound of a woman crying several times during the night. Mm. Mm -hmm. The witnesses uh, said that they saw a mysterious black form of a strange creature appear in Mm -hmm. a window and that the house definitely had an active presence of spirits. Problem is this story and this investigation is a little hard to corroborate. So this was Mm -hmm. definitely something we wanted to ask Amanda about. And that leads to the next part of our conversation with her. So what kind of reputation does the Wilberhan house have locally these days? Like, has there been, have there been any paranormal investigations there?
4: So it's rumored that a ghost hunting team back in the 90s or possibly early 2000s is more likely with ghost hunting, um, that they were able to investigate the house probably before um, anyone lived in it while it was vacant for a period of time. And uh, it's said that there's been um, like shadow figures seen in the house. The most common activity around the house is um, like phantom noises. These these noises of parties that had happened, kind of residual energy hanging around, not just inside the house, but also outside of the house, um, in the yard, noises like music and people laughing and stuff like that. So there are lots of ghost stories around the Han Mansion. Uh, there's also lots of rumors about what inside the mansion looks like like that it looks downstairs like how it did when he was performing um, different kinds of i don't know procedures or surgeries down there and bullet holes in the wall so there's lots of lore in spokane about the han mansion but it's really quite mysterious because no one that i know has been inside of the mansion unless they were trying to recently buy it so um no recent ghost hunters to my knowledge have gotten to Investigate the Han Mansion, but I have heard from other people uh, that I know that are into the paranormal that you can hear these phantom noises from the sidewalk down 17th Avenue. Sometimes people can hear music or hear parties uh, when there's nothing going on in the house. They can hear it coming from the the yard. So, yeah, lots of residual energy I think surrounding the Wilbur Han Mansion. Intelligent, I wouldn't know, just because I haven't investigated it myself. But I don't think it's far-fetched to believe that there would be a lot of this residual energy surrounding the home, being that not only does it have kind of a tragic history, but it also just had a lot of activity and a lot of living energy going in and out of it for so long. So. Yeah, that's kind of what Spokane thinks about it.
2: Do you have an awareness of, um, or a little bit of a backstory on what happened to uh, Doctor in air quotes Han after he wound up leaving the and why he left the house? Because I mean, one of the things that you talked about a few minutes ago was the death of his wife. Which, yes, they, ruled, they I guess they ruled it a suicide. But there were bullets, holes everywhere. So there was this, and I haven't seen any of the court paperwork. It's interesting. Some of the stuff that we saw today on a few other websites that have written it up indicated that, yeah, he would he would take pot shots at her, try to scare her. He was abusive, that sort of thing. So when they got there, it, even the, I guess the lock had been shot off the bedroom door. But it sounds to me like, and I'm speculating right now, unless I find something out more about this uh, later as we're doing this episode. But it sounds to me like, he was able to say, or at least get a jury to believe, oh yeah, I shot that lockout a few weeks ago. And I have all the holes in the wall are from all this, you know, I was out on the porch when she shot herself in the head, which is what he seemed to imply. And the gun was in her hand and everything. And I also read that, you know, he was really, really drunk when the cops showed up. But the question is, you know, did he get away with murder? And, you know, and, and I guess later he was prosecuted for some of the abortion operations that he would had. And, wound up having to get rid of everything and promise not to practice again. So then I guess he put the house on the market and moved out. But what what happened to him after that?
4: So after he put the house on the market and moved out, he moved into an apartment building in or a hotel, I guess, at this time, extended stay hotel. I don't know. Um, But he moved into downtown Spokane into some kind of apartment. And uh, he was living by himself, which is where he ends up meeting his end in this apartment and I find this to be the most fascinating part of the story honestly is how bizarre he comes to an end at this point he's in his apartment and um and his apartment gets broken into by this robber and the robbery happens and he ends up getting murdered by his own bayonet that the robber had murdered him with
2: Right, so looked that place up. you know, it is still there. I guess at the time it was a hotel. now it's apartments, and it's just called the Madison the new Madison apartments, I guess, and at the time it was oh. a hotel. I guess if you, you go there, maybe at Forrest, if you ever get back up there someday, maybe you can go by and figure out which unit he lived in and where he was murdered because the building is still there, and it, too, I think, is on the registry of historic places. It seems like that is and the Davenport Hotel. And, uh, of course, the house. And the other thing to know about the actual crime scene and some of the stuff that we learned was that the FBI investigation, which led to the arrest of the ex-con, his name was Delbert Frenchie or French Visger. And he confessed to killing Dr. Hahn after coming to see him to ask for a loan and deciding to rob him, apparently. So uh, and when he got turned down on the loan, that's when he robbed him and he wound up killing him. And it wasn't there was a violent struggle. And. His wallet had been emptied out, and a three-carat tie, uh, a stone, three-carat stone, a diamond, I think, uh, in a tie pin had been pried out. So Frenchie was, I guess, just kind of desperate for money. But the interesting thing is, especially when you go back to Sylvia saying that he chased her through the house with the sword and threatened to run her Mm -hmm. through with it. That's how he died. Live by the sword, die, die by, by the, the sword.
1: sword. Well, you no, know, you just wonder is there some kind of uh, poetic justice spiritually going on here or just the way that fates work and because we've certainly heard of a lot of ironic deaths. Yeah. But this is this is one just a bad ending for somebody who was a bon vivant.
2: Well, the next thing we got to talking to Amanda about was the nature of hauntings and the type of haunting that's going on here. And she had an interesting perspective on this.
4: This conversation, it is so big and so interesting for me because you have a place like The Conjuring House, which has been investigated many times. There's been a lot of almost expectation for paranormal phenomena injected into The Conjuring House. And I think that that manipulates the energy in a way and can kind of change it where we get into more um egregore territory or Mm -hmm. like more more of like a living energy manipulating the paranormal phenomena but then you have somewhere like the wilbur hahn mansion where anyone living there i i could Safely guess that nobody's been investigating it really. Like maybe there was one team who had investigated it, but it's pretty much untouched from the people who are interested in its paranormal phenomena, which makes me more inclined to believe that it could be a more traditional haunting there. That what living person would be haunting it with their own energy or their own stories or expectations of it? It's likely the energy from people living there that are, that stuck there. I, I like to believe that more often than not it's residual energy. Like I talked about like kind of living energy that imprints on a, a building or a house, but sites of a woman, I, that's hard to say. It's like, who saw the woman in the house? I don't know. Uh, and when, when they saw it, did they just put a face to energy that they didn't know, how to put a face to otherwise did they say it must be a woman or did their brain you know perceive it as a woman because it made sense like so it's hard to say especially when you haven't had a chance to investigate the place itself but but I will say from being near the building it is one of those places that kind of feels alive in a sense and I felt that even before I knew the history to the mansion I remember living in Spokane many years ago and I've always been into spooky old houses and I would to, uh, walk around and try to find these places. And I remember walking yeah. down 17th Avenue and being really drawn to this property, which is interesting now looking back, it's like, was there something to that? Is there some kind of lingering phenomena happening there, you know? So that was a long-winded uh, answer to that. But um, <laughs> but it's really fascinating because I feel like the Han Mansion is a very traditional haunting in a way. And then yeah. you have the Conjuring House that gets more complicated because there is right. a lot of different stuff being
2: put on that house. Well, we found, or you found this article, which I enjoyed. This was an interview with an author and former sheriff named Tony Bamonte, who has written several books. Uh, he has since passed away of pancreatic cancer, but we, uh, we have a link where you can watch an interview with him. He knew a whole lot about the area. He was like an amateur historian. And there's a little section at the end of this article. It was uh, written by Nathan Brand uh, from KREM uh, CBS2. Yes, it's the KREM TV CBS affiliate there. And of course, it, there, with repeater stations, it, I think it goes up into Canada and some of the smaller oh, towns. Oh, okay. Well, now, that's so. interesting. Well, yeah, this was written by Nathan Brand. This was originally published at uh, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific time on October 30th of 2018, this article, which is really a transcript of the video, which you can watch at the link that we that we have for this. But Tony Bamonte was the gentleman being interviewed. And one of the things that he said towards the end of this, there was a section called Fact versus Fiction. And we always like to point out that stuff when we find it. And there's, mm-hmm. I guess there's uh, five facts here that people might not always get right, including us when we've been talking tonight. Number one, Dr. Hahn was not a real doctor. That's one. And the answer to that is, though it's been reported that Hahn was not a real doctor, but a barber with a mail-order medical license. The truth is, that he was actually licensed and worked as a barber to help pay for medical school. Some of his practices, such as electroshock therapy, which are looked down upon now, were once widely accepted. Yeah. Maybe not as bad. No, uh, uh, item number two, Dr. Hahn murdered his second wife in 1940. And this is what I thought too when I first heard this, but here's the the proof on this. Uh, The answer is, though Han was initially arrested for the crime and police were confused by the gunshot holes throughout the house, the powder burns on his wife's hand indicated that she likely pulled the trigger, indicating a suicide. As for the gunshot holes, Han claimed he liked to shoot at insects, but Bomanti believes he was likely firing the shots to intimidate his wife.
1: (laughs) Right, or was it like a Roger... Perrin situation where he's going nuts with the flies. Yeah, right. Or Elvis shooting his TV. Or is he shooting at shadow people? I'm not being flip either. Yeah. Yeah. Is is there something weird going on there? Yeah. Most likely he's doing it to freak out his wife. Uh, I believe that's how William Burroughs' wife was murdered as they were playing William Tell with a pistol down in Mexico
2: and he had to leave quickly after he accidentally shot her. So people do strange things. The next fact that people seem to always believe, the house contains secret tunnels. Well, according to Bomonte, in the application for the Spokane Register for Historic Places, there is a tunnel listed that connects from the house to the garage. hmm So that's interesting. Yeah, at least one. Item four here, the basement contains gutters to drain the blood from Dr. Hahn's operations. Well, Bomonti had been inside the house a number of times, and he said that it appeared quite normal. Of course, uh, going back to our point earlier, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that they aren't hidden by new construction, but he didn't see them when he was in there.
1: You need to do some GPR, ground penetrating radar. Yeah. Passes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then the last fact, the house's owners, these would be the current owners, even though this article was a few years ago, I'm pretty sure it's the same folks, want people to talk to them about the history of the house. The answer to this is actually no. The house is not open to the public. The owners are very private. They do not want ghost hunters on their property. They don't want to give tours, and they don't want extra publicity. So we're standing by that request on their behalf and Mm -hmm. wanted to make sure and report on that. Hi, I'm Amber, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest
1: Burgess. Now back to the show.
2: Well, whenever we have somebody on that's especially that's local to the story that we're covering, we always want to ask them about other things going on in the area. So the next thing we did was we asked Amanda if there were any other haunted houses nearby or other things that we should talk about.
4: One comes to mind in particular, and that's the Campbell House, which is a uh, historic house museum. And the Campbell House, I've been a docent at for, I think, like eight years now. And uh, I've had a few experiences here and there, but uh The Campbell House does have quite the history of being a haunted house. Um, And it's definitely subject to um, storytelling and how that can veer off from fact. (laughs) Um, And there are some stories about the Campbell House being haunted by people or beings that just don't make sense because those people were never in the Campbell House. But I, I do feel like the Campbell House is another really infamously haunted Spokane Location, but what's interesting about Spokane, Washington is that we don't really have a ton of places that people are open to um talking about it being haunted. I don't know why, but Spokane to me seems to have some kind of I don't know, like it just doesn't, it doesn't like acknowledging its local haunts. We also have the Davenport Hotel, which is famously haunted, but the Davenport Hotel doesn't want to talk about it. They don't want to give haunted tours. They don't, (laughs) they don't want to lean into it. And so uh, that's a whole nother story. I don't know why Spokane is like that. We do have very old land out here. But as far as uh, haunted locations, they're, they're few and far between for some reason.
2: Especially these days, it seems like a lot of towns will lean into, especially hotels, because a, a lot of times it increases traffic um, yes. rather than scare people away, mm-hmm. which then makes you wonder if what's happening is on the darker side of things, if they're afraid to talk about it, which is what we, we've we encountered that ourselves in the past Forest, I don't know if you remember in Atchison, Kansas, the rumors about the university there. Uh, and oh, universities. yeah. Yeah was like, we don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about the beautiful campus. <laughs> right. Well, I
1: mean, in that, in that case, yeah, you you have the, there are, let's say, religious politics going on because you have the Catholic Church weighing in on it. And not that they don't believe it, they very much do and and know, know how to handle that, but it's the very specific definitions of what could be haunting it. You have to be careful what you say, otherwise they'll take issue with, your ideas of what could be haunting it typical casper-like ghosts fine something deeper darker and you could say demonic then they're going to take a much deeper interest in what could be there and of course any old place as stephen king says hotels any any place like that that has a lot of traffic of course it's going to have stories because it had a lot of people and people bring that with them
2: well, as we get to this last part of our conversation with Amanda, of course, the next thing we wanted to ask her about was the paranormal investigations that she's been on because she has had some pretty crazy experiences. Let's talk a little bit about your background because you, you are you're currently a paranormal investigator. What what else do you do? I mean, I would love your website, pretty effing spooky. It's awesome. We're going to have links to all your stuff here at the end of the show. But
1: great name, and we also noticed that you're you're wearing a very cool UFO shirt. Yes. Uh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what led you into this? What were some of your earliest, I, I believe you said uh, around seven years old, some of the things that got you into this that inspired you to pursue this or always have an interest in it? Because here's the other thing about Spokane. It does have occasionally a Bigfoot story, UFO stories. Even if it's not talked about, it's got it all.
4: Washington has it all. I find that to be more interesting in Washington, actually, is the UFO Sasquatch mm crowd and how how uh, I'm part of that crowd I don't know what I'm saying but but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it how dense are our, our UFO sightings and encrypted and sightings are here Sasquatch sightings but I first experienced the paranormal when I was about seven years old I lived in a haunted duplex over in uh, Billings Montana and uh, I tell this story about how this glass vase moved on its own across my dresser in my bedroom and uh, at the time I was terrified I was like absolutely not no, thank you. And I asked my mom to switch me rooms. But after that, it kind of was the catalyst for like a lifetime of um, nothing crazy. I mean, no possession or anything too wild. But I was kind of like predispositioned at that point to experience strange stuff. So I, I experienced little hauntings here and there throughout my teenage years. And then as I said, I I began investigating in 2008 with the team, and the reason why I began investigating in the first place was because I wanted to kind of validate my experiences as a child. I had some traumatic things happen as a child, and I wasn't quite sure, as I became older, I wasn't sure what was my brain kind of handling that trauma and what was actually legitimate paranormal phenomena. So it began selfishly, as a way to validate my experiences. And then later into my adulthood, as I started Pretty up and Spooky and began investigating as myself, just with myself, I realized that a lot of my adventures into the strange were because I was trying, and this gets really deep for a second, mm-hmm. I try to come to terms with my own mortality and with the mortality of my loved ones. And I, I think a lot of people can relate to this, it's just not talked about. So often in the paranormal crowd, but I want to understand what could possibly happen after I die, uh, and uh, and I and I have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that that will one day happen. So basically, that's what kind of pushes me through uh, my adventures. It is all sort of serving the self; it's serving myself, but. You know, I also am a very curious person. I, I call myself a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, which I think you need to be to be a ghost hunter in the traditional sense. And uh, I do also love kind of igniting conversation online as well, which is the part I love about being pretty and spooky the most is kind of igniting deeper conversations about why we are interested in paranormal phenomena and what it all really means, so... It started with a vase moving across my dresser on its own while I was coloring and singing the, I think the Star-Spangled Banner for some reason. It's like one of those memories that just sticks in your head. And I remember every single bit of it. And then now here I am like questioning mortality and what that (laughs) means. But I guess that's just the nature of growing older and, you know, but that's kind of my short uh, history as a paranormal investigator.
2: What are some of the ones you've done that have uh, seemed to struck most of a chord with you?
4: I have like two answers for this. One, a lot of the residential cases I've done, which I don't really do so much anymore um, because of my reasons for investigating, but a, a lot of residential cases have really changed how I look at the paranormal and and how I approach the subject of haunted houses or ghosts. Um, But also, I recently went to the Lizzie Borden house and uh, I had an experience there that kind of sort of changed my life in a way. Um, I considered myself a skeptical believer before that, even though I had this lifetime of experiences, I managed to stay grounded and and you know i don't get my head up too high in the clouds and just believe everything's a ghost uh the lizzie borden house i went into it not thinking much would happen and ended up having like the most insane night of my life so
1: i watched the video it's on your uh on your website and your blog uh, about not really thinking about it but you checked in on easter weekend <laughs> yeah. and by happenstance not a lot of people were were staying there you're all alone in the lizzie borden house by yourself yeah Yeah, no one else showed up until the next day.
4: It was wild. And that sounds, I think some people had a hard time believing me if they hadn't have watched the uh, three hours of live stream I had done because I didn't want to be alone. But uh It really happened like that. I booked myself a room on Easter Sunday because I had been at the Conjuring House the night before. I was uh, completely sleep deprived and um, I like tacked on this Lizzie Borden room at the end because I was like, why not? I'm in the area. And yeah, I get there and this nice uh, older gentleman gives me a two hour long tour. And then he tells me like, somebody will be here in the morning. Cause I, what's funny is I was asking him, I was like, how can I buy a t-shirt? <laughs> like I wanted to buy some merch. Yeah. And I was like, well, who's gonna sell me the t-shirt? And he was like, oh, she'll be here at 10 in the morning and I'm leaving. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> and uh, it is so yeah. funny cause he had no reaction at all. And I still wonder to this day what that was about because either he knew what was about to happen was gonna be crazy or he didn't know because i don't know if he's ever stayed in the house alone before i don't know what his experience is but he was just like so nonchalant about it he's like yeah yeah have fun he was like help yourself to the drinks in the fridge i had full reign of that house which was a very Mm. it was very bizarre in that way anyway like it just felt weird to have access to this historic house but um i stayed in my room because i was only allowed to sleep in one bedroom makes sense i can't sleep in all the beds and uh On my live stream, I I was feeling really confident and I decided to turn off all of the lights and I was like, we're going to go dark, we're going to turn off all the lights. I turn off all the lights, I'm relatively okay, but I go back to my room and I'm trying to eat and I'm watching YouTube on my phone and stuff and I just start hearing footsteps upstairs where I had just been and turned off lights. So I hear these footsteps and it was so just footsteps it it couldn't have been anything else it wasn't there wasn't a question in my mind of is that wind is that the house moving is that a radiator knocking it wasn't like that at all it was just boots <laughs> walking around the room upstairs and then and then I'm kind of like oh my god what what and then I pay attention to it and then I hear it walking down the stairs and then I'm like oh my gosh this is a lot to handle what is going on so I call I think my mom or Someone, I called so many people that night. I called like five different people. Throughout the course of the night, I could hear walking in my own bedroom. I heard like the armoire in the room moving. At one point I was seeing like specks of light move across the floor, which was a first for me. I've never seen anything like an orb or anything like that before. And the the paranormal phenomena in that house was just mind blowing. And these footsteps especially were so human sounding that My gut reaction was who's in the house with me. And then when I realized there can't possibly be anyone in the house because I've been around all of the rooms and I looked all around, then I realized that, wow, that's a ghost. (laughs) I think (laughs) And all of these years, paranormal investigating 12 years at this point, I still was in shock that I was in the presence of just a full blown ghost. I don't know why it was so mind blowing, but yeah, it was the best. (laughs)
2: <laughs> wow. And you you were streaming when that happened?
4: When I first heard the footsteps, I was on the phone. But I was streaming. I did end up streaming for I think a total of like three hours and uh which is a very long time to live stream, but I was scared and I didn't want to let I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. Yeah, so I was live streaming for about three hours, and there are some footsteps that are caught on the live stream. There's also oh, really? a point. Yeah, there, there's also a point where you can hear. Um, you have to wear headphones and listen for it, but you can hear the uh, armoire moving. Like you can hear how old wood moves when you walk next to it. And yeah. You can see my reaction just pure shock <laughs> and terror <laughs> uh, as I heard it. But yeah, you know what's funny too is like I had all my ghost hunting equipment. I was totally ready to uh, capture a ghost and I didn't do an ounce of ghost hunting there was something inside of me that said for some reason now is not the time it was this unsaid like almost respect which is weird because I've never looked at ghost hunting quite like that like I never found anything to be wrong with wanting to film or capture it on a piece of equipment. But in this moment, I was like, I think I need to just experience this. And also, I'm too scared to go pick up my equipment. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're about to ask if you uh, got any EVPs, or it, it sounds like you didn't turn anything on.
4: It's been a hard thing to admit as a paranormal investigator that, no, I came out of the Lizzie Borden house completely alone. I mean, I think I had 45 minutes of an EVP session, but I, I had stuck it in my pocket and was walking around with it because I was scared and I was just running around. <laughs> and uh, I have The Conjuring house. I've been to Waverly Hills. I, I have captured lots of activity on on equipment before. And it, it's something I find myself particularly strong at is, is using my equipment. But it's a hard lesson learned is that uh, sometimes the other takes control and, and you're just yeah. kind of at its mercy in a way.
1: On the flip side, it, it's something that I have heard from former paranormal investigators. Not that they're, they're former, that they totally don't do it anymore, but their attitude has changed with it. I don't know if you've heard of author Troy Taylor, but he's the one whose book we, we followed for the Velisca story, another notoriously haunted place, which of course a, a very strong reason for being haunted. He said, uh, this happens a lot to paranormal investigators, that he got to a point where uh, he wasn't after capturing that. He was there for the personal experience. So he would go to these places and he said, I would have a camera or I'd have my phone and I'd take some photos because I want to see it later. But I didn't need to capture all this stuff like an EVP or it was more important to me to have the feeling, the personal experience feeling that, that uh, happens to you that's so specific and subjective. He said, that's what had meaning to me. And he said, yeah, I, I'll go to these places, but you can often find a lot of gear on sale <laughs> by former people who, who give it up or they, they or they change their tactic in a way. So it's all about how you interpret and how you, how you receive the experience for having done it this long. And then suddenly you hear something that it's undeniable. And I wanted to point this out to people. They have to think about it this way, is that it's like, oh, well, you heard some thumps, right? And you thought those were, Footsteps. But let me put it this way. I think what freaks people out, and it's hard to imagine if you're not there, next time somebody's walking around your house, especially if you have an old wooden house, the way the footsteps fall, the footfalls, the actual heel to toe on old wooden steps and the way it creaks, there's no other sound really like that. Footsteps have a very specific sound, especially for old hard soled shoes of the era mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying is when you're there especially that close there's no other sound that's you know mistaken for that
4: it was like the sound of that too and hearing it come down a hallway and expecting someone to just then show up in the doorway it was so psychologically exhausting all my senses were heightened and and there was this element of like is that a real person do i need to approach this differently but yeah lizzie borden man it was it was the real deal for sure
1: <laughs> there's a friend of ours uh she had made a post on Facebook with her friends because they love this stuff. So they all stayed there for, I think, at least a couple of nights. Even got out a Ouija board, I think, in the parlor at the Lizzie Borden house. Nothing happened. There's another huge misunderstanding. I saw th- this comment quite a bit. You can see it still, I'm sure, on the Facebook page for the Sally house, where we had a very profound experience ourselves. In that people paid their $20 or whatever whatever the cost is. I, I'm not even sure how much it is to get in now. And they're so disappointed because they didn't get scrapped. They didn't hear anything. Nothing happened because they think like if you just go there, something is bound to happen. And a lot of times it does, but it is also pretty rare and pretty specific. But it sounds like I don't know if you felt this way, but you were maybe singled out being alone and being interested in this.
4: Yes, absolutely. It, I have given a lot of thought to this because, as I said, I was at the I was at the Conjuring House just the night before. Without saying too much, it, it didn't turn out how I had hoped it would. There was I didn't get too much activity, and I was kind of starting to almost believe that nothing was happening around me. I it, it was this whole personal journey for me um, where I was like, "Are things just not happening around me? I'm not getting any results from these really famous haunted locations." So I also went into the Lizzie Borden House under the assumption that not much would happen. And I was feeling pretty tough. And I think that that is part of why I was so scared that night as well, is it felt so pointed. It felt so intelligent and like it was observing me being there. And I I also, for some reason, and it could have been in my head. I, I don't claim to be a psychic or anything, but I also felt like it was just saying like the audacity you have to just stay here alone. Like yeah. that's how, that's how it felt. <laughs>
2: I try not to go back (laughs) to this because I've gone back to it a thousand million times on our show because it was this really poignant experience that we had at the Sally house, but the parallels between your mindset at the Lizzie Borden house and mine at the Sally house and the experience there wasn't just mine. There was five or six people in there. They all were a part of it, but there was a component of it that felt very personal. And I feel like when you're talking about how you went into the Lizzie Borden house and also your overall train of thought. And I don't have years of investigating. In fact, we hadn't really investigated much at all. At that point, we'd reported on things, but hadn't done much in the field. I just want you to know, I can really relate to your disposition, what you're saying, how it felt when you experienced it, how it felt afterwards, and also not giving a crap about whether or not you recorded it. I'm there on all of it. And you know, we got a recording, And like, here's our like minuscule, like it was essentially one of our first or second investigations, if you could even call it that. It was just walking in with a a recorder and I was ready to give up recording things at that point. I was like, okay, I'm good. I got this. I understand now. And I'm like, I myself am more inclined now to force point to go back somewhere and just kind of hang out and experience Mm -hmm. it. And I'll come out and I'll tell you what I experienced. And I just don't care if you believe me or not. I didn't catch yep. it. I don't have evidence of it. I didn't get a photo of it. I don't care. I don't need you to believe that because I know what I experienced. I can so relate to what you're talking about. I just want you to know that I feel very connected to your experience as you know, yeah. on a personal level. So
4: I'm very lucky, too, to have built a community around myself online that I, I felt like a lot of people genuinely, as they should, believe me that, that this happened the way that it did. It, it, yeah how it unfolded was just so unexpected, I think, for myself and for other people consuming it too online that like, yeah, it was a very humbling experience. I I would say that a year ago, I was a very traditional ghost hunter, like you see on TV, not giving it much thought. And my time in Massachusetts really, I I was already on that journey, but it really shifted me to kind of take a step back and be like, I need to pay mind to how I approach this stuff, because I, I can't tell how it's going to go. It's unexpected. It's paranormal, you know, it's not, it's not normal. So
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's, it's (laughs) yes, para. No, that's the experience I, I find a lot is that your expectations, and I don't know if this is, you certainly heard of the trickster element with a lot of this in the phenomenon in general, In that blanket term is that your expectations are confounded. It's not what it's going to be when you start off in that you're going to end up with something that you might get it, you might not. To that point, I, I wondered uh, if you'd what you'd experienced at, at Waverly Hills. What, is, what was your feeling of Kentucky? And, and uh, also, you have some uh, family experience in Kentucky?
4: As of yesterday, I have found I have a lot of lineage in Kentucky, and Appalachia in particular. But my grandma is from Kentucky. Uh, I have a lot of family down there. But um, it was my first time visiting Kentucky when I went to Waverly Hills. And uh, Waverly Hills, I... Um, I've been to big locations like that before. I didn't really have any expectations. I went with nine other investigators that I met online. And there was, you know, it's funny you say, you talk about the trickster element. I've thought a lot about that in my own personal journey as an investigator, because even my night at Waverly Hills kind of felt like there was some type of trickster element to it because I would be walking down a hall with a couple other investigators or I'd be sitting somewhere and we'd be doing an EVP session or whatever. And somebody would go, Oh my God, do you see that? Do you see that shadow down the hallway or do you hear that voice or what have you? And I was seeing nothing. I saw nothing. I heard nothing um, in those moments. And it just opened up all these possibilities for me of like, why, you know, how, <laughs> and I, and these are people I trust too. I trust that they're seeing what they see and, and I wasn't experiencing the same thing. However, come about 3 a.m., which is funny if you know about the, the witching hour, which I've also never really prescribed to the idea that there is a witching hour. I like to uh, say that we have like, that paranormal phenomena is always there, always happening and that we unveil ourselves to see it rather than like step, into a threshold or whatever so it doesn't make sense to me for 3 a.m to be some kind of like magical hour where this phenomena happens I think it's always there but at 3 a.m we were in the body shoot and uh it was me and three other gals and once again I was maybe overly confident walking up and down the body shoot have my equipment out I have my phone out and I'm I'm talking to my camera and stuff and uh this door at the at the beginning of the body shoot if you've been there there's like a Mm -hmm. door in the hallway up there and uh the door slammed shut and it slammed shut with such power it was so shocking we had an evp or a digital recorder running we got on on the recorder, us screaming our heads off, like just screaming our heads off. You yeah. can hear someone say, what was that? And then somebody else going, I don't know. And uh, I grabbed my stuff. It was, my backpack was unzipped. I grabbed it like a pizza box. And I just started running towards where the sound was coming from because there's that adrenaline junkie aspect of myself that that comes out out of nowhere. And I was like, I wanna see it. I wanna see a ghost. And uh, so I run towards it. Don't find anything, but for the next like 45 minutes is when all of the activity started happen- happening. The the REM pods going off. We're hearing outrageous things we're hearing like a body tray being rolled and we're hearing women laughing and wow. funny enough it's only happening as we're like going from one place to another so mm. we go somewhere and we get all of our equipment out we have our cameras and we have our digital recorder we start walking to another floor and then we hear Hee, he, 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 this giggling and we hear rolling and it's happening like when we can't capture it and so yep. not only was it a kind of a trickster for myself personally, as I came in overly confident, um, thinking nothing would happen, but it was also just messing with us at a certain point, which was, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Waverly Hills was really interesting too. And in Kentucky, I just, I love Kentucky. Mm -hmm. As you guys, I'm sure know, it just feels so ancient and old down there.
1: I was going to say, same thing happened at Waverly, which I still don't know what to make of it. People ask me, and I still don't, you know, if, if you said, what happened to your first trip to Waverly? It's like, well, so a lot of small things, but also maybe one really big thing. I may have seen a full apparition of
2: a person, but here's the thing what you were talking about it didn't happen until we went to move. I wonder what would happen if you started trying to trick the tricksters. If you go in, or if you could trick yourself somehow psychologically to be setting up gear when it looks like you're taking it down, or, get, you know, it's like I, I used to edit TV commercials. There was this director in LA who was famous forgetting all his best takes by what he would do is the camera would be off and he would say action and the actors would do their thing and especially he would do this with extras or if there was a scene that he wanted to be candid i he would say okay cut and he would he would turn around and turn the camera on and at that point the actors gave the bet, and he all his favorite performances came from those takes when they thought the camera wasn't running and oh, you talking wonder, about 20k Yes, I am talking about Tony Kaye, Kay, <laughs> okay, American yeah. History X, whatever, character. Yeah. But anyway, wh- I guess what I wonder is like if you—if it would even be feasible if you started, like if you pretend to pack up, but you still got this thing set up over here because it, and I don't think it will work because if you look at Skinwalker Ranch or whatever, everything just seems so omniscient. It seems like it knows everything you're thinking and it wants, it does, it's, it's like you want to record, you're not going to get this, you're not going to get this, but we're going to make sure you know it's here. So, you know, that's the yeah. thing I'm about
4: you know the longer that i do this the more i believe that all possibilities are feasible like everything is possible every new idea or new thought that i feel like comes up i feel like is another possibility and i think that uh i think that there's so much strange phenomena out there that is capable of so many different things that like i think it's definitely possible that you could in a sense like play with a trickster. I don't see why not. And then on top of that there's like 5 million different types of hauntings. I feel like or or hauntings in quotation marks, you know, like yeah. so yeah, it, it's fascinating and the longer you do it, the less you know, you know. So
2: Well, Amanda, we really really want to thank you for spending time with us tonight. This has been a really interesting and fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on and if you want if there's anything you want to tell our listeners about where they might be able to find you or follow you online, you want to share that with them?
4: I am pretty effing spooky on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, uh, all of the social medias. And then I'm pretty that's about it.
2: Well, that's the letter F and the letter N, not E-F-F-I-N. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: And, and not the real word. Not the real word. It's just F-N, yeah.
2: Thank you for taking the time to come on. We hope that you'll come back. If you uh, if you have any more startling investigations, you want to come back and talk about some stuff, you don't have to bring proof to talk to us. Just You can just <laughs> tell us the story. Our listeners are open to that. So we'd we'd love to have you back.
4: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great.
2: That was cool. I always love talking to somebody who is who's there because we haven't been Mm -hmm. able, you know, we're not able to get out in the field as much. But, you know, now as the show's gotten older and I think after the pandemic settles down and everything, I am looking forward to doing more traveling with you, my friend. Yeah. Um,
1: Oh, absolutely. Once we can
2: get out on the road there, we just need to get it planned, but uh, mm-hmm. that is on the horizon for people who are interested in that. But let, let's talk about this house and this particular haunting. I, there's a lot of interesting things about it to me. This, there's a lot of stories, and I thought that what Amanda said about the stories from the area being sequestered in a way, people not wanting to talk about things, it was interesting when she said, you know, when I go around, I'm doing paranormal investigations here mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get information and people are kind of tight-lipped. And I guess that must be a cultural thing going on there. It'd be interesting to go and stay for a while and figure yeah. out what might be at the root of that, because I'm sure there's an explanation. Of course, she's been there 11 years, and you'd think she would know that if there there was a reason for it. Uh, well, it, again, it's different perspectives. And like, like you said, I, I'm
1: from the area. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I would say people are stoic and tight-lipped. We've talked about Certainly, I have good friends from New England, Maine specifically, as we talked about in The Phantom Horse of Greensboro, and I told some stories from Maine. They're a little more stoic up there, yeah. and sensible. You know, yeah. it's 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 hard scrabble land up there. It's not all just uh, hot cocoa and buffalo plaid and <laughs> and uh, you know snowshoes hanging on the on the cabin wall. There, these are hard Sounds working wonderful. people. Yeah, for the rich, I believe, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. For, for the kind of bunkport folks, it's lovely. For a lot of Maine, though, it's hard scrabble, and and they're very hardworking, laboring folks, and they don't have time for a lot of foolishness. But it's such an old area. They also, they know what they see too. You can't tell them like, oh, you're full of malarkey. It's like, you know, you don't tell somebody their own business. Right. So they're just not real open to talking about it because it's not, it's, again, we've talked about this regionally as well. Look at Southerners. They love to tell a good story. I've heard so many great stories from uh, Southerners, Texans, That's one of their characterizations, you know, the the Texas tall tale and all that. It's a land of great dramatic stories and dramatic characters living them out. I think in the Pacific Northwest and the Inland Empire and a little bit further east as you get into the Idaho Panhandle and Montana, you know, that's cowboy country. Yeah. It's still a little bit of the Old West and wild things still happen. And if people aren't talking about it, I mean, you know, when I was growing up there, if there was something, kids would talk about it. Of course, that's what I was saying at the beginning. There's always that weird, spooky house that's boarded up. And you dare each other to go up there and knock on the door because you'll, you'll hear a knock back. You'll see somebody poking out between the, the boards and slats. You know, there's always something like that. And that was no different there. As far as the adults are concerned, you know, this house, again, it's the nature of it. There, there's no... Famous house there. There's no Sally House. There's no Vallisca House, right? That I know of, where it's become an open, investigatable attraction, so everybody knows about it. And it's not a scenario where people have embraced something weird that's happened, like Point Pleasant or the Flatwoods Monster. And there's a festival, Boggy Creek, all these places where some weird thing happened, and the town says, "Yeah, it's not. You know, we don't want to be known for it." But guess what? It it brings in a lot of tourism dollars. It's fun. Uh, certainly Kecksburg and those places. It's like, yeah, we're going to have a festival. We're going to celebrate this. There's not much of that that I know of up there. And so people, you know, they're not going to be flapping their lips about a bunch of stuff that they, that just isn't true up there or they don't know anything about. Uh, on the other hand, there may not be a whole lot of really famous dramatic things that have happened up there, just small things. Yeah. I grew up and not even being close to the area, but, you know, I, I'd heard of Fort Spokane being really haunted And, uh, you know, people are hearing soldiers marching and, and wagons and caissons and, you know, all that kind of stuff that you hear at any old fort. And I'm sure the Cataldo mission that we just talked about earlier has got some resident spooks of its own. Every place does but nothing so major that it's notorious and it's open and people come from all over to go investigate it. Like a lot of places we talk about, Waverly, the Lizzie Borden House, all these places everybody's heard of across the nation. There's not much of that. So yeah, it's just people don't want to just start yapping about something that is not totally a solid legend and yeah, they don't want to talk about it due to the nature of the people there. But like this house, what's interesting about it, it's private. It's always been a private residence. It's never been open for tours or this and that. A few people have gotten in there to poke around, but now it's in private hands as well. And the people who are there are private people. So it's not likely people are going to be investigating it anytime soon. But that's also, that forbiddenness also makes it intriguing. And then the last thing I'll say, we always wonder about the chicken and egg principle. Is there something about the land itself that was in the rock, something native, something natural, organic, that caused all this turmoil, this strife between relationships of people and acting on the nature of the people themselves, of course, that stirred it up, and that's what's embedded in the house? Or was it just the people? Was it just Han? Mm -hmm. Or did it start before, uh, you know, with the Hecla Eris? And something there that caused a lot of turmoil because it's such a common trope that we hear. And, and I believe it because we've talked to people who've stayed in these houses where, well, again, going back to Maine, that house that we talked about there, people know like nobody in that house ever stayed married. We believe there's a, a few, uh, there's possibly one suicide, a, a certain death, this and that. It's such common things uh, that happen to these types of houses. And I, as I was saying before, the a house in Pasadena Nobody ever stayed married in that house. Not that it had this crazy artless estate activity, but just like a, a freaky vibe. And then I had a good friend who stayed in there overnight who was friends with the, with the high school kids that, that lived there. Right. That were normal. It's just that some weird crap happened in the middle of the night. And I'm talking about like all the windows in the dining room flinging open by themselves all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Doors slamming shut on their own. So that's not major, but that certainly sounds haunted to me. And she saw it and didn't want to stay there
2: ever again. And her friend's parents eventually got divorced. Well, you know, what's interesting to me about this house is the observation I have having looked at this story and you're right. It's hard to pin down because people aren't really talking about it. There's not been an investigation, but it's famous enough that it made it into Ellie Bragg's book. Mm -hmm. When I look at this, I think of, when I think of the common ground of other stories that you've heard over the years, and then not just paranormal ones, true crime, uh, lots of things. To a certain extent, it comes down to money. I mean, I think of, um, and I had to look it up. I didn't have this memorized, but I think of Timothy Mm -hmm. 6.10. I'll read the King James version of this. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And what I thought was that's in the King James Bible, not the New King mm-hmm. James Version. What I thought was interesting about this particular place is that it, you know, it came from the mining era. They, you know, obviously she had money already, but this that it just went crazy when they invested in that mine, and it just that seem, sudden onset of wealth seems mm-hmm. to create all kinds of problems, no matter where you're at. If you don't know how to deal yeah. with it, look at any lottery winner who who doesn't have any idea what to do with the finances. <laughs> Things get complicated and it escalates, and it does seem to yeah. a certain extent that that has bred some bad scenarios there. Whether it's the parties, when you, when you think about Dr. Han, who came after the the mining heiress, and he figures out how to make money in his medical practice, legitimate or not. Uh, obviously, the illegal abortions were a source of income, but it's according to all the research, he made most of his money from the electrical shock therapy, which was a reasonably a reasonably understood practice at the time that people somewhat respected or believed in, and he conducted however many electroshock treatments he needed to conduct to make a fortune. And then it seemed like he went crazy. He said, "I'm going to have all these crazy parties whatever." He'd already, you know, he had a midlife crisis, mm-hmm. I guess, left his first wife and five kids behind. Then is now in the house making all this money, and the 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 money just leads to. More money, more problems. (laughs) I was about to say that, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, so that's my point, though. It's like, when I look at this story, the common ground that I see between all the bad things that happened in the house was wealth. And is there another reason? Maybe so. But it's an interesting story looking at it from the top down. A huge fan, as it's been made clear in this episode, at least, of The Great Gatsby and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the greatest books ever written, frankly. And that story is fascinating. And there's a lot of elements in it that are parallel to this. I mean, particularly the, the, the partying took place in the Roaring Twenties when Gatsby takes place. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of common ground there, and that's a haunting story. And the haunting part of it is about wealth. But it's also about lost love and all these other things. And clearly, there was, there was clearly some kind of passion between Han and his wife with all the divorces and getting back together. It does seem like the house harbors a very powerful energy of some kind. And I'm fascinated with it because I think there's a lot more to this story than we were able to uncover. And in a way, I think that makes it even more intriguing. There's a chaotic energy there. And yeah it's not an energy I like.
1: <laughs> I've encountered it, and uh I want to get away from it. If you've ever been around somebody who's been described as a hot mess, yeah, somebody who's uh, well, I had a neighbor like that, and I just felt uneasy around her, uh, yeah. not for all the noise, the party noise that went on. And again, that's that partying thing yeah there There was one time where that the house music started Thursday evening. And it was oops, oops, oomps, oops at a low level because I was pounding on the ceiling. And, it and that did not end until Sunday afternoon, Oof. early evening. Yeah. And there's only so much you can do. You have to live with this person. But like, yeah, that set me off where it's just like, okay, I don't want to be around this. And everything this person did was just chaos and just bad mojo. Yeah. And again, it had to do with a lot of that, uh, that social partying energy and just, yeah, so you're right with money, it brings that social aspect and it happened and started with the first people that were in there. You know, they didn't end up together forever. Right. That was a little bit chaotic, right? He was a, a bit of a womanizer, a handsome guy and a ladies man and this and that. She had a lot of strong energy and that clashed, you know, so that wasn't going to last long. You're right. It has a lot to do with money, which I see is bringing more options. And certainly there are tons of true crime stories with very wealthy people as well, because they're just people. More money doesn't bring more class or more common sense. People are emotional no matter how much money you have. just that you have more options to do weird stuff. Yeah. So in this case, yeah, there's a couple interesting things going on. It's history... It's that Gatsby angle to it, which is, we must admit, is romanticized and kind of dramatic because most of us don't get to live like that. So we like hearing about it and all the excess and the extravagance and this and that and the foolishness. On the other hand, it's still just people. And I'm reminded of uh, this very common saying now a lot of people have heard, but it's the first sentence of Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, quote, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, for a family to be happy, there are key aspects that uh, must be accepted. So you have to have good health, acceptable financial security, mutual infection. And if one of those is missing, it's kind of like having a successful fire. You need three things ignition, fuel, and oxygen. If you're missing one of those, it doesn't work. And in this case, you have a lot of money, financial stability, which is poo pooed away, and not much affection, or just really chaotic, misplaced affection, and just crazy energy. So yeah, I, I think in that scenario, there's a it's a good recipe for
2: just mayhem. It's been an eye-opening episode. I've really enjoyed it. Before we go, though, I did want to ask you something. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been skirting around this mm-hmm. for a long time in other episodes, and it's become kind of a running gag. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners have been wondering a little bit, especially as this <laughs> one's gone on and if we're, if we're going to talk about it or not, because so, we haven't yeah. addressed it yet. What exactly is your connection to Spokane? <laughs> All right. Well,
1: uh, since you're asking me directly, I'll tell you, Spokane is where I... <laughs>
2: That's going to wrap up this episode on The Mad Doctor of Spokane with our special guest, paranormal investigator Amanda Paulson. You can follow her pretty much anywhere on the internet at PrettyFNSpooky. We're dark the next two weeks to attend podcast movement, but we'll be back on August 14th with a brand new show.
1: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket
2: Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Permission
0: to astonishing astonishing legends to use my My voice?
1: voice. However they see fit. However they see fit. However they
3: see fit. C-A-R-E-T-E-R.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our
1: theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com
2: or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com/astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
3: darling old for they will soon take you away at the table note with lola they will serve us coca-cola no more saying there. let me buy no more coming through the ride. old manhattan and martini have received a big subpoena every day'll be sunday when the town goes dry When the town goes dry, a woman can't drive you to drink. If she does just stop and sing, she will drive you to the sink. Rich old men and women who have champagne on the brain will have us with the accent on the pain. When prohibition knocks upon our door, yes, old Mr. Bromo Seltzer will be sore. Goodbye, Hunter, so long. Up. Farewell, hey, the hey! Oh, my little glass of brew, they are handling it to you. No more will you see the slackers flirting with the cheese and crackers. No more saying, just one more. No more nightcap, no side door. Then the hat you wear on Sunday won't be too small for you Monday. Every day will be Sunday when the town goes dry. Can you picture some big husky with a pick and spade when it's natty in the shade, drinking warm red lemonade, huh? Many fallen torters will enlist and join the ranks. Then every army will be full of tanks. Then rubbers and umbrellas won't be high. No, they won't be needed when the town is dry. Goodbye, hunter. So long, Scott, farewell, Hague and Hague. Oh, my little floating fears, you are going out of fears. Every little Broadway daughter will be sipping soda water. No more saying, fill uh, the pail no more feet up on the rain. you can bet that we will greebo when we have the toggle people every day will be sunday when the town goes dry